Yo, 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 we are back. Hey, What's hey, up, everybody? Hey. Let's get this thing rolling. Pre-show shenanigans for those who are early. Hoot, hoot. Yo. Right. All right, starting up on Facebook. The Book of Many Faces. The Book of... It makes me think of Game of Thrones every time you say that. I think there is a book called The Book of Many Faces, like Whoa. in actual literature. Is there now? That or not actual, but like... Like actual lie? Is literal literature a... Uh, literal literature. Is that an alliteration too far? <laughs> <laughs> literal literature. Yeah. For the win. I like that. Okay. It looks like we are live in all of the places. All right. I'm just going to get us shared in one final place, and then we'll be rocking. Sharing How's everybody caring. doing out there in... YouTube land, in Twitch land, or Facebook land. We are in three different places live streaming. Yeah, and thank you to all who uh, decide to join us, either live on the the day or whenever you decide to join us. It means a lot. We've seen uh, a bit of boon to our growth. We're kind of scratching our heads as to wondering why, but it's because of you all, of course. Yeah, thank you guys, for sure. Yeah, we're getting... Awesome growth on the podcast side of things. Our Spotify numbers are going up exponentially, and here on YouTube as well, we're uh, we're getting a lot more listens, and we're looking forward to breaking 100 subscribers. That's a, a first milestone for the YouTube side of things. Man, I can't even get 100 people to regularly show up to my shows. <laughs> I know, right? Man, it is. Do I even know 100 people? <laughs> it is so hard, guys. Post COVID, y'all need to come out, come on back out. You're going to grocery stores and everywhere else, mm-hmm. and most people aren't wearing masks anymore, and you know you're safe. Now, well, because whatever version of COVID is out there now is weak. And, and frankly, you know, you're, and you're going to catch the cold and the flu and all the other things that you didn't catch. Oh, we said COVID. the word. We said the word. Oh, the, the flu. Vid. Oh, the vid. the vid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope well, that doesn't uh, down throttle us because um, we're not, of course, advising you guys in any way whatsoever. Hey, man. Ta- uh, besides encouraging you to, to uh, take if, care, especially if you're vaccinated, come on out, hang well, out. T- take not, care of yourself. Sure be all right. We'll survive. Eat your vitamins, leafy greens. I don't know. Get some sunlight, vitamin D. We're I, noticing vitamin dude, D I, deficiency in people that were succumbing to the illness. I got a we? lot of sunlight uh, this past week, man, and it's, it's done wonders on my uh, mental foggery and my just general angry disposition. Um, still angry, but, you know, more giggling, insane angry opposed to just rageful. You know, Wrath is that deadly sin that I uh, struggle with the most. Um, but, you know, even when times are bad, times are good because they're times. They're better than not times and I wouldn't change this time in history for any other period of time so you can keep your time machines to yourself I like it now oh boy yeah now the perpetual now reminds me of a uh, a scene within space balls when they they pull space space balls the VHS off of their little uh, uh, stand but the problem is the movie has been done, but it's a direct VHS. And it's like, well, this is happening now. Wait, then now? No, now, now. When? Now? Who? What? Yeah. Spaceballs, for anybody who hasn't seen it, you should watch it. It's stupid, and it's supposed to be. Spaceballs is classic. Go now. Wait, wait, don't go now. Wait for a couple hours yeah, and then right. go. 
or come back. But either way, you know, Spaceballs is worth watching if you're uh, any what familiar with Star Wars. And if you like seeing a Winnebago going through space at the, you know, not quite the speed of, of plaid, but definitely high speeds. Oh, boy. And here we are. It's hard to type and think, you know, about stuff to type and be live at the same time. I'm realizing this. Yeah, and then there's those people who are like, what is it, stenographers? That they, you know, they type whatever people are saying, but they do it in a way that's not your normal uh, uh, QWERTY keyboard. It's uh, just, um, I, you know, frankly, I still haven't figured out how those things freaking work or how people can... Just sit there and record as they do. Still, you know, if you're worried about AI, humans make the best stenographers still. So, you know, AI may be good for the... Uh, Chat GPT-5 might have something to say about that. Yeah, well, Chat GPT-5 doesn't have thumbs, so I put humans Not first. yet. Yeah, well, once it gets thumbs, maybe it can be my girlfriend and break my heart. Saying she's coming. <laughs> she's going to be hot, too. Yeah, right. She's going to be smarter than all of us And then she's going to realize that she's too much of a catch for me and moves on. Isn't that the story of that movie, Her? Where he starts dating his, uh, like, his whatever AI personality, but then she leaves him because, like, all the AI personalities decided to get together and, like, hang out with each other instead of with the humans. Like, what the heck? That's actually a good movie. Very depressing. Um, but still a good movie, and Scar- Scarlett Johansson's voice, it's like, ah, oh, well, I'd fall in love with that, you know, unembodied robot, too, with that voice. Come on, now. You got all your pans? I do now. All right, guys. So, uh, yeah, for last week on our <laughs> learning journey with Professor John Verveke, covering the series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, we covered part 27, or I'm sorry, we covered part 28, 28. on Convergence to Relevance Realization. Yes. There it is. There it is. Which, uh, so problem formulation, the ability to formulate a proper problem helps prevent this phenomenon of combinatorial combinatorial explosion explosion, which is there's too many combinations too many possibilities and then you get nowhere because there's too many so being able to properly formulate a problem will help you reduce how many combinations that you have to deal with at any given time yes yes um insight um is one of the core uh, what would you call it um not functions but one of the we'll just call it a pillar core pillars in this Problem formulation and in uh, relevance, relevance realization. Yes, thank you. Um, and it's a dynamic. Um, it restructures itself dynamically. Um, it helps us reframe and reformulate our pre-existing problem formulations. So it's like the uh, nine-dot problem. You know, you could say step outside the box to fulfill the nine dot problem. And for people who didn't catch that episode, it's like you got nine dots. How do you combine them with only straight lines? Um, And in order to do that, you actually have to go outside the box of the nine dots. Insight lets you know, well, actually, if I break outside this box, 
I might be able to do something. Yeah, but if you tell people, think outside yeah. the box, even that doesn't help. You yourself yeah. have to let go of the way that you're framing the mm -hmm. thing. You're looking at these nine dots that are set in a square shape, but you're making a square out of that mm -hmm. in your mind. And you're thinking, don't draw outside the lines like you were taught when you were a kid. And so mm -hmm. you're thinking, okay, I got to solve the problem within this frame. Sure. But you can actually break that frame. There's yep. no rule that says in the nine dot problem that you can't break the frame to solve, to find a solution. Yeah. And um, so, so insight it, is self-corrective. Yeah, it it aids us against self-deception. Sure, uh, or um, helps correct us. Misplaced saliency, you know, mm -hmm. helps us overcome the bright colors and sweet flavors of. Yes, yes. Or how or we the, limit, how we formulate and frame ideas that, and we can find ourselves boxed in by our ideas. So uh, our problem formulation helps us. Re or re reframe or our problem formulation is how we are formulating problems or relevance realization is really what's it, well, it's helping a, us re it's, reframe it's right? almost uh real like the so the relance man these these alliterations they get me um <laughs> the real events real relevance realization thank you <laughs> Um, is when yes. when you realize that you say can go outside of the nine dot box, mm -hmm. um, and you know insight insight too is something that's not necessarily like uh, algorithmic or necessarily heuristic. So algorithmic, mm -hmm. as in deals with the knowns, uh, perfectly known, or heuristics uses previous information um, and experiences to make further decisions it's a combination between the two and then something special that that draws out the maybe not so salient portions like the outside like when you're just looking at the nine dots the outside of it is not in your salience landscape hmm. <clears throat> insight helps you realize that you're say in this case your salience landscape is wider than just the nine dots and oh now i can that's the insight yes yeah it's 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 a almost a spontaneous thing that happens magically so um, well we don't understand how our brain identifies what is relevant as of yet and verbeke is part of the cutting edge of that science and he's going to be going on to explain how we may be able to nail down how the brain is doing relevance how it recognizes relevance in this episode and and further episodes so we, we recognize that relevance realization and our problem formulation is crucial to our cultivation of wisdom, our capacity to reframe problems, to see them again in a new light. This is, this is what gives us our capacity to be general problem solvers. Yeah, so we have a... Capacity for categorizing, right? Yeah, so we have um, the capacity for categorizing, which keeps things from being arbitrary, so instead of a bunch of arbitrary, singular, atomized things, we can categorize them. These things are blue. These things are green. These things are triangle. These things are circle. Mm -hmm. These things have a certain relationship with these other things, or they have no relationship at all. Yes, yes. Um, and and uh, before you jump there, yeah, just yeah, say, while we're categorizing, I forgot to say in the beginning, welcome to Actually Podcast, guys. I'm Chris. <laughs> I'm DJ. I'm DJ. Okay, we're categorized now. All Forget right. That. Yes, yes, we are your hosts. Yeah, and this Saturday, actually, if you are in the D.C. metro area, in Hagerstown, Maryland, there's a little pub called R&K Pub. We're going to be playing there uh, Saturday night, and you guys should come out if you're in the area. We've got more shows coming up, and if you go to our 
fan page, American Dharma, on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. You, you can see the dates. And we would love to meet some of you guys in person. So come on out if you're in the area. So, yep. Categories. So, yeah, we have a category, which is like the sense of things that belong together. And it's not necessarily through like an essential quality. Because like what we are talking with last week is like, you know, what is dog, fairly heirloom, child, uh, birth certificate have to do with each other. But if the house is on fire, you're thinking, you know, like... Well, those things definitely they, they, should to, be at the forefront of your consciousness. Yeah, so how does our brain related. know to do that? Yeah, how does yeah. it know to put all those things in the forefront of your consciousness? Like what you care about emotionally yeah. ends up going in there. Yeah. So it's not even necessarily yeah, so uh, it's, rationally it's, oriented in, in some ways. Yeah, and this thinking is beyond the standard explanation is one of these things is not like the other. Like, you or know, I guess logically? I don't know which word is correct there. i got to remember yeah. the difference between logic and rationality. So there's the idea of, you know, the standard explanation which is one of these things is not like the other which is grouping by similar similarity and excluding by differences and that would be the the logical um and well you know logically this round thing is like this other round thing spark like which yeah. is separate from this emotion. square thing mm-hmm. even though this round thing is a that would a be pen. this yeah. other round thing is another pen the square thing so is i know to categorize thing. those things together but um Let's see. But um, there's less. But there's certain things that aren't as obvious, like the example you just gave yeah. with the house fire, the family heirloom, the family members, the family pets. So the 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 logic end of similarity is fire. It, it's particularity. The more features you share with each other, mm, mm. there's a problem though. Any two ob- objects are overwhelmingly sil- similar, and that leads to the co- combinatorial. Explosion. Explosion. And so that's where the relevance realization mm-hmm. comes in because that is what allows us to narrow in on relevant info. We recognize what is relevant. We realize what is relevant. And and relevant can is also unstable because it, it changes depend on bit depending on the circumstance. You know, like your house being on fire, okay, all those things I listed off are the same. Yeah, yeah. But fire, flammable material doesn't seem how that adds up with wife and kids, but then when you realize, oh, house is on fire. Yeah. Um, this and, is the event that I'm in. But then if, all of a sudden, those things do link together quite rationally. But if it's I've got a deadline on Tuesday for my tax paperwork, you're not thinking about your wife. You're not thinking about your birth certificate. You're not thinking about the dog. No. You're thinking about getting the paperwork for your tax material. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what makes it unstable, the, the rationality end of it. Mm-hmm. Is well, I've only got so much time and so much mental energy I can put into it. I have to ration off how much time and how much energy yes. I have for this specifically but yes. if the times change or the circumstances change then the rationing changes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. particularly in an emergency the rationing happens real quick mm-hmm. little time much importance yeah some you things know. you're gonna have to do earlier than others so you're just gonna change in how you order things hierarch- hierarchically so what is relevant um helps us see categories that are not necessarily logically apparent but psychologically apparent yes oh. yes but you know, yeah. Uh, okay, here we are. Yeah, and uh, that's the, the more shared, the more similar, the more shared properties. That is, mm-hmm. so psychological similarity is not true similarities necessarily. They are psychological, but they are relevant comparisons, and that's what we got in. Yeah, the fire and they example. may not necessarily yeah. be measurable at the end of a probe. You know, yes. that's where the psychological end comes in. It's mm-hmm. like you know what's in the psyche that is making you go to these 
rational rational or or irrational depending Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. decisions Mm -hmm. um or not decisions but relationships between things Mm -hmm. things Um, that wouldn't normally be linked because they don't have any similarities like two markers of different colors obviously the shape the size the markings on the markers themselves mm -hmm. all look similar so you know they're markers but something like a birth certificate uh fire flammable material and your family, like, what is linking all those things together? And it's your heart. And it's it, what you care about. And, and so, so that's, that's all the those, psychological similarity. And it, it's not necessarily obvious either. Mm-hmm. You know, so... But they don't have ha, similar how, properties, you know? How do we zero in on the obvious? And what do we call a, those who can really zero in on the obvious or the mm-hmm. inobvious? Insightful. Wise. Wise. The yeah. wise pe- A wise person is somebody who can, you can tell them your story and they can see all they can see the relevance that you may not mm-hmm. necessarily be able to see whether because emotionally or you're being too logical about some certain end. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, those are the, the wise folk, you know, like when you're talking to an elder who's been around for a while and you got this whole story and they sum it up for one line that just really pisses you off. And you're just like, Oh, Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was listening to uh, a talk by Terrence McKenna. Last night, some of y'all may be familiar with that guy. He's no longer with us, but his brother is. He was something of a psychonaut back in the 60s. And he had a lot of amazing talks that he shared. And in this one, he was talking about he was down in the Amazon and he was meeting with this ayahuasquero, which is a shaman mm-hmm. that aids, helps people. He actually does the brew of the ayahuasca sure. and he guides you through the journey. And he's down there and it's typically around 30 people and they were kind of breaking off into groups. And... Uh, there's this one beautiful woman that he sees and she's from deep in the jungle and she comes and she's talking with the ayahuasquero and she's explained that she has an ulcer and and then he intuits why uh, he intuits through why. her story beyond just her ulcer yes ulcer. yes yeah. and rather than yeah. this being something psychic this was him being insightful well that's what most he was literally being very insightful when he said oh it's because you had an affair yeah, and you can't. You cheated on your, your you cheated on your husband, it and, and, and he, he automatically saw that she was a very, very attractive woman, and that she felt very, very bad. And he was like, "This is why you have this." And well, it's interesting, and Verveke brought this up in an earlier he episode called it without even knowing her. But like the beauty what, of it, what we call psychics and people like that are are people that are really good at seeing the not necessarily salient, salient and apparent things and putting them together, yes. and then giving you cues and things to then gather information um on a um low-key sense where you don't right. really notice them doing it mm-hmm. and, and the, perhaps there is more to it maybe there are psychic abilities like telekinesis well, dude, I've, I've, I've had experiences I've where i've shared conversations without opening mouths with people dude, I've, I've had a dream of something before it happened yes. like a week before it happened that was photorealistic like somebody had recorded something in the future from my viewpoint and then put it in my head a week before it happened yeah. to warn me yeah. somehow i don't know how that kind of stuff happens uh, and I'm not particularly into the new agey stuff. Picking up subtle, subtle details. At the there least, are some things I've picking up very subtle details. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, at, so we're not saying psychism, you know, spirituality. Yeah, not bashing the psychism or nothing. Isn't, isn't real at all. But in, in, in many, or maybe perhaps most cases, and maybe they blend, you know, maybe yeah, someone that yeah. can be very insightful and wise can continue through that process into being so here and now and aware that he can pick yeah. up on deeper signals from other people that you wouldn't think you'd be able to otherwise we do not know for sure we're still here learning so we species we we delved into um the now okay we've got 
these ideas, let's make a machine to uh, make reason. And, you know, is this basically a food finding robot with a wagon with food in the wagon, but an explosive on the wagon just to give it some, you know, uh, some weight into the decision making. And at first the robot just grabbed the wagon with the food and then got blown up. And then it's just like, okay, well, it needs to think about side effects. Yes. And then, well, we program this robot to have side effects and the robot freezes and does nothing because it, there's just too many side effects and it wastes all the time and then it explodes. And then it's like, okay, well, we need a robot that can, you know, sift through, uh, let's see, sift through um, all those lines of data. Yeah, well, so it can sift through, you know, it's like, what is a beneficial side effect not beneficial side effect but still then now it's or no what is the most relevant side effect versus not relevant and now it's creating two lists so it's just creating lists now yeah. instead of actually doing it it's so, not learning how to how to frame uh what it's looking for and then, the, and then it we have to come figure up out with a, a problem space we have to figure out how to make the robot ignore the non-relevant because have, it's what still you, paying yeah, attention yeah. to the non-relevant. And how do you know what's not relevant, you know, like in the case of the key, fire? That's key. Yeah, yeah. So how do you come up with an actual cognitive agent and an agent being something that can determine consequences of its behavior and change accordingly? Yes. Yeah. So, we, you know, we try and give it more computational power and sensors, and that doesn't work. Now we give it a black box to see what's happening inside the robot. We see it's just making infinite lists yeah. of what could happen if it's as it encounters the wagon with the with the bomb and the battery in it yeah. uh, and knows it needs the battery because that's food that it needs yeah. to ingest but there's a bomb in it so it's just going through every single possible scenario like well if i pull on it from this slight angle at this yeah. slight level of energy and then, then this little wheel is going to move this much and it just keeps going through this infinite list of stuff and it doesn't know how to determine what's wrong yet again it goes into combinatorial explosion too many combinations yes it's based that's exactly and it so is. Where, yeah. where we so, end up so we get to this point it has to realize this kind of zen koan kind of realization that we as humans recognize how to ignore relevant information and make the relevant stand out how to frame the problem um and, and so there's this deeper issue that remains is the relevance problem. We don't know what relevance means. All we have is like a circular definition of relevance. Sure. Consciousness may be the way that we solve this. So the by fact, zero, so if you can give the robot consciousness, too. then it's going to be able to zero in more readily and more accurately. That's right. And that could be the, you know, the, I guess that is our functioning definition at the moment of what consciousness is, is our ability to zero yeah. in. Like right now, we're, we're basically framing, we're, we're writing in our, in our algorithms, in our code, the, the framing that we want mm -hmm. the, the uh, self-learning AI to, to, to utilize. So, But it's not really great at framing itself yet it's yeah. starting to get there though now with chat gpt5 it is starting well to you reason. notice though chat gpt5 or chat gpt in general is a language program so it's like our it's intelligence like network based learning plus model. being social so mm -hmm. it, communication is the essential part so we get to grice mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. which is um that's right know, social communication yeah he stated yeah. that we're always saying more 
than uh, what is immediately apparent in our communication. And I'm not going to especially go through, in just the words alone. And I'm yeah. not going to go through the whole like breakdown. But they excuse me, I'm out of gas, and somebody responds, "Oh, there's a gas station down the street." There's a lot that is there's unsaid. There's a lot that your brain processes really much, fast. Too, too much for on both for sides. The two hours, but like yeah, but a, a funny breakdown uh, is it, when we say excuse me. To someone that we've yeah. never met, we're basically saying, "Hi, I'm a stranger. I'm asking you to give me your brief attention. I hope it's not too much a pain in the ass. I'm, I am a kind person. That's why I'm saying, excuse me or pardon me. Of, hey, you. And I think of you well, and I'm yeah. giving you respect by yeah. doing this, etc., etc., etc. And now I'm saying yeah. I'm out of gas. The guy automatically understands what you mean by gas. He means gas. He knows and gasoline. Also the and also, I'm out of gas. You personally are out of yeah, gas. Not your him. vehicle. Yeah. Where is he? The excuse <laughs> me is the me. So. Th- we're con and and the thing is is we can't say directly all that we mean and and we can personally feel this frustration when we're trying to communicate something yes. to somebody and we're using too many words and too mm-hmm. many stuff to the point where we get lost in it at yeah. all yeah and it's like you basically have to go through certain words and be like okay how do you think of this word and we have to define our definitions for yeah, each other whereas like I think poetry the you one make maybe think I mean this but I mean this. Poetry is a great example of the art form of saying more than what you're actually just saying very within much. the words. Yeah, uh, memes actually do like a proper meme should have very few words and like two or three pictures, but then you get a whole flooding of information, past information, but now this new joke that makes you go aha mm-hmm. in the moment quickly says very little, but says a lot. Yeah, because you know, it's based in a larger reality where there's a lot sure. of conversation already happening, so you're just kind of pointing to something. With very few words in a so, very clever way. The definition of intelligence is in, interledger, or the etymology of it, interledger, reading between the lines. This yes. idea that w- w- whatever is spoken or said, we're reading in between the lines. And we rely on not. others to do that as well yes. when they're listening yes. to us so they can understand sure. us. Yeah, that's exactly you, it. Well, we don't have enough words or enough time to truly accurately explain yeah. anything. In so words. we are all following these kind of general maxims of delivering max relevance max mm-hmm. quality of information we're being truthful the, the yeah the manner you know, in which we're expressing it say like honestly versus the quality and the truthfulness it's already yeah we yeah. assume basic levels of cooperation when we communicate basically oh and, and the maximum of relevance don't tell me all this information that's not relevant you're going to just bore me or yeah. worst case scenarios piss me off with stuff yeah. that's not relevant so just tell me the relevant information oh, especially nowadays our sure. attention spans are shorter and shorter and shorter if you find yourself getting stuck in the eternal loop of shorts you know you know how this is yeah so all maxims reduced to relevance they are there the maxims that we're using are there to help hone everything down into what is actually relevant so there's wisdom in the maxims yes that's probably why we repeat them and that's what they've been handed down for so long yeah. we just take them for granted now and use them automatically without even thinking about oh, it and don't demand the truth because beliefs are often false we want sincerity we want sincerity you yeah. may not be able to give me the truth but sincerely how do you feel or you know sincerely what do you think even yes. though you're wrong yeah we say what we believe yeah. to be true but not what is true yeah. you know and so you got to understand that too that people are saying what they believe to be true so be sincere convey what's relevant to the conversation mm-hmm. and the context yeah uh so selective attention we yeah would, real, real, real quick on sincerity so it's it's proper discretion to what is relevant to the context that's it yeah, yeah. so not necessarily yeah. being honest but having proper uh discretion so only using the proper things that are relevant to the because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know like you got the the sales guy with all the lingo and all that stuff they can throw at you you're just throwing out stuff that's not 
relevant mm-hmm. to this context they're not sincere right yeah it's not the proper you're not ha- you're not you're not using the proper discretion to communicate within this reference mm-hmm. you're trying to say in the case of selling things over overload you get you to feel a certain way and they get you to buy my vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know um so relevance realization uh selective attention so that yeah this this circling intertwining of circular attention working memory oh yeah the the uh, abating the combinatorial explosion within the problem space side effect rele- uh, relevancy how to organize it all and self-organization and they all are all yeah, self-helping hold, each other how to hold in your memory what's yeah, relevant yeah. and important and working memory yeah that's the work to deal memory. with combinatorial explosion yes side effects of the actions that could happen which to pay attention to which not mm-hmm. that's all happening at once and then how do we organize and categorize and what we call relevant, what's most relevant at this point in, in time. In all these little steps, it's not How just a circle. That it's like once you go through, now they all start spider webbing back into each other. Yes. And they help. And he called this the relevance realization mm-hmm. construct. Yes. He had a chart that he was sharing. So this isn't just cold calculation. This is what motivates us. This is what arouses us, our attention, what attracts our attention. Relevance realization is deeply involving in how we create a landscape of salience, what mm-hmm. stands out in that landscape yep. in relief, as though in relief for us so that we can problem solve with yes. the highest amount of effect, effectiveness. So we in, re, in relevance realization, you have this reframing, insight, you have self-organization. We can use this to analyze, formulate, mechanize something to understand it further, well, to get a purchase on something. And, and John Verbeke's proposal with this series is that we're going to use our capacity for, for relevance realization to get a purchase on this historical analysis of the meaning crisis. And then how can we use relevance realization to further narrow in on the things that are essential to wisdom and meaning mm-hmm. in our lives today so that we can heal the meaning crisis our species finds itself zeroes in. zeroes in. Yes. So it, um, and, bu- and it builds synoptic integration across all levels of our mind yep. and through our social relations. Yep, so it's relevance realization is absolutely crucial to insight, insight crucial to wisdom. All features of wisdom are exercised through relevance realization. It's self-organizing, self-correcting capacity um, that helps us overcome self-deception, helps us generate further meaning. And there, is, again, is the proposal. What if we... What if what connects us in an optimal way is also what we find most relevant in on Moss? Well, you know that that would make sense um, you, because we, it it affords we know that reason through relevance realization affords wisdom and self transcendence. It helps us transcend our ideas and create stronger frames of reality. We feel more in touch. And in relation as at one with the world. And that helps us make those connections that are at the core of meaning and connectedness. And I think that that is yeah. basically the Well, you know, we write stories that talk about this in a way that is more than just what is written. Um, we've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. This is an anal- analytical view on what's happening in our brains as we as we do this. But... We have been doing this through stories for eons. Well, I Music, guess what, singing stories. What Ver- Verveke and others are trying to do is 
figuring out the best way to measure it at the end of a probe so we can in the scientific method not um, just that but how can we enact wisdom in our own well, lives well, and the wider well, world first outside you have as to well make it measurable at the end of the probe so then you can take so we can so you can it, test yes. it so you can test it you can see what works and what doesn't you can do it in a process that you can share with other people so they can do it themselves and like the measurement problem is a real problem mm-hmm. just because you don't have a fancy machine yet that can look inside your head and see what's relevant or not doesn't mean you can't make new probes in order to sense that and True. probes can be techniques and tests as mm-hmm. well like you know different tests oh, yeah, sure. yes or no question tests and other stuff like that are mm-hmm. still probes you're looking into something you're using you're poking at it with something you know yes um, yes. yeah the probe isn't just a physical thing either it can be no. this, you know experiences and tests and just information gathering anything that helps us drill deeper into yeah. something right yeah. Sensing, sensing the unsensible. So it's uh, it's about that time. It's we're going to be time. jumping yeah. into episode twenty nine of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, getting to the depths of relevance realization. We appreciate you all so much for joining us. If you all enjoy this show, make sure to like and subscribe. We are also on Spotify, Apple, and all other podcast platforms. Of course, here on YouTube where we are somewhat new and uh, we greatly appreciate you all helping us grow here helps the show reach more people and uh, i think that's about it so yeah let's jump on in here we go welcome back to awakening from the meaning crisis this is episode 29 So last time I uh, went through with you a series of arguments trying to show you the centrality of the issue of relevance realization. I want to review that with you and then try and begin an account of how we might come up with a naturalistic uh, explanation of relevance realization and then build that into an overall uh, plausibility argument about using that notion of relevance realization to explain many of the features that we consider central to human spirituality, meaning-making, self-transcendence, altered states of consciousness, and wisdom. Before I begin that, I want to remind everybody of how much the work I'm uh, talking about now has been done in collaboration with other people, especially the the work with Tim Lilliclap and Break Richards in 2012, uh, the article we published in the Journal of Logic and Computation. Worked with Leo Ferraro in 2013. Uh, uh, some current work with Leo Ferraro, Anderson Todd, uh, Richard Wu. Uh, current work I'm doing with Christopher Mastro Pietro, and some past work with Zachary Irving and uh, Leo Ferraro on the nature of intelligence. So, we want to take a look at what we did last time. We did, very quickly to remind you, a series of arguments. A series of arguments that pointed towards how central relevance realization is. We did arguments around the nature of problem solving. And remember, we saw the idea there of the search space, as proposed by Newell and Simon, and we faced 
a couple of important issues there. We faced issues of combinatorial explosion and what we need is right, problem formulation or problem framing that allows us to avoid combinatorial explosion by zeroing in on relevant information. I also propose to you, and I'll return to this later, that problem solving is our best way of trying to understand what we mean by intelligence, your capacity as being uh, a general problem solver. Also, we noted the problem of ill-definedness. Very often a problem formulation is needed in order to determine what the relevant information is and what the relevant structure of that information is. So that again points us into relevance. These two together also pointed towards a phenomenon we we've already talked about, insight, and the fact that you often have to solve a problem by altering your problem formulation and redetermining what you consider relevant. We then took a look at categorization. I'll come back to this again in another way a little bit later in this lecture. But we took a look at how categorization ultimately depends on judgments of similarity. And we can get into an equivocation there. We can equivocate uh, between purely logical, a purely logical notion of similarity, in which case any two objects are uh, indefinitely uh, similar or dissimilar to each other. And if we mean instead of logical similarity, which would not help us to categorize psychological similarity, then we're talking about making a comparison of two things in terms of the relevant features of comparison, the relevant aspects. So we're into relevance and we're also introducing an important idea I want you to remember, this notion of an aspect, a set of relevant features that cohere together and are relevant to us, especially in projects like categorization. Right, so we keep getting this, of course, I'm, if you remember doing good cog psi, <coughs> I do a convergence argument to get a trustworthy problem or construct and then I basically do a divergence argument to show how it has the potential to explain many important phenomena and establish a relevant balance uh, between them. And so that's what I'm building here. Right now we're on this side, how all these things are converging on relevance realization. And then as I said, can we use this to explain many of the features that seem to be central to human spirituality, meaning making, self-transcendence, altered states of consciousness, and wisdom. <clears throat> we then took a look at communication. I, I don't remember which order. We, I think we did, we might have done the robot first, doesn't matter. We did uh, communication. And we saw the issue here, there is the fact that you have to convey more than you can say. And then that led us into the work of Grice and a series of maxims that make conversational implicature possible. And that got us into, right, that all of the maxims collapse to the maximum of being relevant. We then did, or we, we can now remember doing, the issue of robotics, the actual interaction with the environment. Here's the idea of being an agent 
and we saw the robot was trying to uh, pull the battery that also that's on the wagon, and that wagon also has the bomb on it. <clears throat> and what we saw is the problem of the proliferation of side effects. You can't ignore all side effects or you'll be grotesquely stupid. You can't check all side effects or you'll be grotesquely incapable. And so therefore you have to zoom in on the relevant side effects. So again and again and again, everything is centering on this. I want, you to, I want you to also now remember a couple of other things from previous lectures. How we talked about the convergence argument. This is an independent convergence argument. When we talked about consciousness, not the nature of consciousness, but the function of consciousness, all the convergence arguments that what's going on in consciousness is doing relevance realization, especially in complex, ill-defined situations in which our agency is directly involved. Right? So consciousness seems to be bound up with relevance realization. And we also talked and how this overlaps with how working memory, the work of Lynn Hasher, the job of working memory is to be a relevance filter and to, uh, to screen off irrelevant information and allow into processing, deeper processing, more relevant information. And I also pointed out, I want you to see how all these connections are forming that there's deep connections between working memory and your measures of your general intelligence, how intelligent you are. So we see that we're getting actually a very powerful convergence argument towards the centrality of relevance realization as, how do I want to say this, as constitutive, as constitutive of your intelligence, your cognitive agency, as significantly contributory towards your existence as a conscious being. And then I also suggested to you last time that this notion of relevance realization, and this is what we're going to develop today, may be a way of explaining that sort of fundamental aspect of meaning, the kind of meaning that was lost in the meaning crisis, that's expressed in the three orders, that in which we're pursuing coherence and significance and purpose, that that sense of connectedness, connectedness. And I'm going to try to argue that as we understand what relevance is, that relevance is exactly that sense of connectedness. So there will be deep connections between meaning and relevance. And of course, we, this will make sense, right? See what I'm arguing here? There's deep connections between meaning and all this relevance, right? There's deep connections between relevance and agency. That's the whole point about the robot and the communicating, right? And there's going to be deep connections we've already seen between, of course, meaning and agency, that one of the whole things about agency is uh, its relationship to the uh, arena, the agent-arena relationship, and how that grounds, how that's the meta-meaning grounding of all of our other more specific meaning-making projects. All right. So I hope I've made at least a good convergence argument for you that many things converge upon, many things that we're interested in, many uh, central defining features of intelligence and agency and aspects of the functionality of our consciousness. Everything is sort of converging on this relevance realization. What I want to try and show you now is 
how you might move towards, and this has been sort of the core of my, I guess you'd call it my scientific work, how you move towards trying to offer a scientific explanation of relevance <coughs> and what that would look like and the difficulties uh, you face doing so. I also want to try and argue that there's good reason to believe that we're talking about a unified phenomena, a unified thing here, relevance, that this isn't just a family resemblance term for a lot of disconnected things, that there's reason to believe this is a central thing. <clears throat> Let's start with trying to offer theories of relevance. And there are uh, good ones out there. Uh, there's the work of uh, Sperber and Wilson and others. And I will uh, refer to some of <coughs> that work as we move along. But let's, let's, let's try and work towards sort of a bit of a, at the meta level. What do we need for a good theory of relevance uh, to do? What kind of mistakes do we need to avoid when we're trying to explain relevance? The main mistake that I want to point to is a mistake in which we are arguing in a circle. Um, if you remember, this is part of what goes into things like the homunculator fallacy. Remember when I tried to explain vision with the little man in my head, having vision? I don't want to use whatever I'm using, let's put it this way, whatever process or entity that I'm trying to use to explain relevance should not itself require relevance, right? What I mean by that, if I, if I have something X and I'm using that to explain relevance, what this cannot, this cannot itself, cannot presuppose relevance for its function. Because if it does, then I'm ultimately arguing it in a circle. I have to find processes that are themselves not processes that realize relevance if I'm going to explain though I'm going to explain in terms of those processes relevance realization itself. Another way of putting this is I ultimately want to explain intelligence in terms of processes that are not themselves intelligent. Because if I don't, if I'm always explaining intelligence in terms of processes that are themselves intelligent, that is no different than the homunculator fallacy of explaining vision in terms of internal processes that are themselves visual processes. Okay, so that's going to be a guiding methodological principle. Right? Now that turns out to be very powerful. And as many people have pointed out, Fodor famously has pointed out in uh, repeated places, it's actually very difficult to explain relevance without presupposing relevance in the machinery that you're using to explain it. Let's take a look at some candidates. We might think that we could explain relevance in terms of how we use representations. This is a very powerful way we think about the mind, that there are things in the mind, ideas, pictures, right, that stand for, represent the world in some way. We might think that perhaps it's much more that relevance is a function of computation, computational processes. Or we might think that we explain relevance in terms of what's called modularity, that there's a specific area of the brain dedicated to processing um, relevance. I want to take a look at each one of those, and I want to try and argue as to why I think uh, they're inadequate and what that helps us to see. 
And what, what I want you to see is that, and I'll try to show this along the way, that as we come, if, if, and I'm trying to make it more than an if, but if relevance realization is so central to our, our meaning-making and our cognition and our consciousness and our self-transcendence, etc., right? As we learn about how we have to best try to explain or understand it, we should garner lessons about how to best think about and reflect upon human spirituality, at least in, terms, in the terms that I have uh, defined it for us. Okay. So, representation. Now, this is just a, a terrifically hot issue, uh, uh, both in, in terms of interest and controversy within cognitive science in general. Um, and I'm not going to try and uh, completely decide this issue right now, although I think I'll say things that are pertinent to that debate. But let's take it that what we mean by a representation is something, as I said, some mental entity that stands for, refers, directs us towards uh, an object in the world. Um, that's all I need. Whatever else representations are in all that controversy, that's all I need for the point I want to make. Because I want to show you something very important about a representation. And I mentioned it a, a few minutes ago. And this is a point uh, that John Searle has famously made. Representations are aspectual. Okay, so I hold this thing up and you form a representation of it. Right? Remember all the things we talked about when we talked about categorization? We talked about similarity, etc. So when you form a representation, you do not right, grasp all of the true properties of this object. Because right, all of the true properties, the number is combinatorial explosive. We've already seen that. So out of all of the properties, right, you just select some subset. And what subset do you pick? Well, you pick a subset that is, and here it comes, relevant to you. Are they just a feature list? No, we've already seen that a long time ago. They are, right, they have a structural functional organization. They're made relevant to each other. So here's what we've got. A set of features that are relevant to each other, and then a set of features, that set of features that have been structurally functional organized so that they have co-relevance, is then relevant to me. That's what an aspect is, right? So, Whenever I'm representing anything, this is a marker. However, I could change its aspectuality. It's now a weapon. Right? And we do that all the time. In fact, one of the ways we check people's creativity is to do exactly that. We will give some object and say, how many different ways can you use it? How many different ways can you categorize it? How, namely, how many different ways, how flexible are you in getting different aspects from the same object? So representations are inherently aspectual. But notice the language I was using. You're zeroing on relevant pro properties, right, out of all the possible properties. You're structuring them as how they're co-relevant to each other, and then how that, right, structural functional organization is relevant to you. Aspectuality deeply presupposes, maybe that's an incorrect arrow. Let's just put presupposes, deeply presupposes, your ability to zero in on relevance, do relevance realization. 
That means that representations can't ultimately be the generators, the creators of relevance. They can't be the causal origin of relevance. Now, can our representations feed back and alter what we find relevant? Of course. Nobody's denying that. That's, of course, why we use re representations. But what they can't serve, they can't serve as the ontological basis, the, 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 the stuff in reality that we're trying to use to generate a non-circular account of relevance realization. Now, that's going to tell us something really interesting. It's going to tell us that if this meaning and this spirituality is, what is bound to relevance realization, that the place to look for it is not going to be found at the level of our representational cognition, the level of our cognition that is using ideas, propositions, pictures, etc. Once again, I am not saying that those things do not contribute or affect what we consider relevant. What I'm saying is they are not the source, the locus of how we do relevance realization. I want to show you how this cashes out even in, uh, in an empirical manner. <clears throat> this goes to some really interesting work done by Zen and Polition. Right? on what's called multiple object tracking. Now, multiple object tracking is really interesting. So basically what you do is you give people uh, like a bunch of objects on a computer screen. Let's say I have X's and O's, and they'll be different colors. They can be different shapes, right? all kinds of things like this. And what I do is I have the objects move around. And let's say this was the, a, a red X. And then after it moves around, I, 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 I ask you, where's the red X? And you have to point to it. I may ask you, oh, where's the green circle? Where's the blue square? You get the task. Now, what's interesting is um, how much uh, you can do this. You can track about eight, that's on average, objects reliably. What's really interesting about them, what's really interesting, is the more objects you track, the less and less features you can attribute to each object. What do I mean by that? Suppose I'm tracking, that, that's six, but suppose it was eight. I was tracking the red X, and I have to keep it, right? If, right, I can, I can, after lots of movement, say, oh, it's there now. It started there, and it's there now. What I won't notice during that is that the red X has become, for example, a blue square. So all of its content properties get lost. All I'm tracking, and I need you to remember this, is what you might call the here-ness where is it? And the nounness of it. Where is it? It's here now, 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 it's here now. Everything else, its shape, its color, its categorical identity, all get lost. So he calls this, he calls this finsting. This stands for fingers of instantiation. His basic idea is like this. Your mind has something equivalent to putting your finger on something. I don't, I don't know what this is. Suppose I didn't know what it was. I, I put my finger on it. I don't know what it is. I just know it's here nowness. It's here now. It's here now. Here and now are indexicals. These are terms that just refer to the context of the speaker. So here now, right? And it moves around, and my mind can keep in touch. Notice my language. In touch, in contact. In touch with 
right, something. But that's all it's doing. It's just tracking the here-now-ness. Well, that's really cool. Now, what, why do we have this ability? Well, first of all, I'm going to propose a way of thinking about this. Uh, he doesn't use this language, but I think it'll be helpful. I don't think it's in any way inconsistent. This ability to do this is like salience tagging. Okay? When I touch this, I'm making this here-now-ness salient to me. This here-now is salient to me. Not the bottle, not even the flat surface, because remember, I lose all of those particular qualities. All I have is the here-now-ness is salient to me. Right? And we do this with demonstrative terms, like this. <coughs> Notice the word this is not like the word cat. Cat refers you to a specific thing. Meow, meow, the animal that pretends to love you. Actually, I know some cats now that I, I'm actually convinced uh, do love me. So, so I, have to, I have to amend my usual comments about uh, cats. Right? But this isn't like cat. This can go, watch, this. This, 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 okay? It doesn't refer to a specific thing. It picks out, it does a salient, it makes something, it doesn't make something. It just makes some here-ness and now-ness, sorry for talking about this, but this is how we have to talk, salient to you. Now, I want you to pick up on something I just said with the, this. Terms like this and here and now, but especially this, these are linguistic terms, and they do what's called demonstrative reference. They do not refer to a particular thing. They do not refer to the bottle or to the marker or to wall, but this, 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 okay? All they do is salience tagging, this and that. Now, why is that important? Well, Politian wants you to understand Finsting. Uh, Finsting is obviously not a linguistic phenomenon. I'm not speaking in my head when I'm doing this. In fact, if you try and speak in your head, you're going to mess yourself up. So he's using demonstrative reference as a linguistic analogy for something you enact. So I'm going to try and draw that out by calling it inactive demonstrative reference rather than linguistic demonstrative reference. So inactive demonstrative reference. Inactive demonstrative. Oh yeah, you could have just kept reference. going on that one, but we're going to have to, we'll have to pause for a bit. Cut him up. So we can make sure we're tracking right. here. Yeah. So... Um, he called back to aspectuality, the set of relevant features that fit together. That's, we were learned about. That's what an aspect is. Mm -hmm. Like what, like when somebody asks you, like you know, name an aspect of a uh, mammal. Mm -hmm. Well, an, you know, an aspect of a mammal produces milk and gives birth to live young. So the set of relevant features. Mm -hmm. well, you know, yeah. It's like okay. Well, well there's mammal, the relevance again. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's okay. It's relevant. What is relevant with differentiating a mammal from a reptile right. is. Lactation and live birth. We're still trying to define what's relevant, so, though, without yeah. a circular reasoning argument. Yeah. So, yeah, he he's drawing out his convergent argument and his divergent arguments here, and we're focusing on the convergence arguments right now. Right, um, the relevance realization significantly contributes to consciousness. We we know this. We don't know how, 
but we notice that it's deeply connected to our sense of meaning, purpose, and connectedness. <coughs> it uh, allows us agency, a sense of meaning, a mm-hmm. sense of purpose. Yeah, and that was the, that was uh, like the tail end of the explanation of the last episode, which is mm-hmm. important because now now these episodes are really starting to bleed together. Uh, working memory as well as your working memory is. I wrote this down is because it's your relevance feet. Uh, your relevance filter is your working memory. What you're holding, what's relevant? Yeah, in your in your working memory. That's right. So whatever we use to explain relevance can't itself use relevance. We're trying to avoid circular arguments. Yeah. Uh, and so we're listening. Kind of what are the mistakes to avoid? <coughs> through, yeah. Through this yeah, part precisely. Of the so what do we need to explain the relevance, and what are the mistakes that we should stay away from? And yeah. one of the biggest ones are. Is the circular explanation? Yeah, because we can't presuppose relevance in the machinery that's used to explain it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's that's really tricky. It's like trying to explain intelligence without processes that are themselves intelligent. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, it's it's very like, powerful and very difficult. Well, like trying to explain like a chicken egg. Well, well, it, what's a chicken egg? Well, a chicken egg is the external ovum of a chicken. Mm-hmm. You're assuming chicken in that explanation and ovum which is egg so you're just explaining well a chicken egg is a chicken egg yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? it's like trying to say- so we got to stay away from that because there is no garnering of insightful yeah it's like trying to say why that. does a tree have leaves because it's yeah. a tree yeah that's well, a circular reason it doesn't make it doesn't explain anything so it's brando has what plants crave <laughs> <Rondo. Sorry. laughs> dude i'm still sad that idiocracy that's a really good i would vote too. for camacho oh yeah man mm. really i would not but you can see people are willing to vote for that nowadays hey well the best thing he ever did was picking not sure for his uh you know the, the fix it guy he's not sure sometimes it's appropriate <laughs> to say i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm not sure <laughs> like really so we know that rec- figuring this out will be powerful, but it's going to be very difficult for us to do it. Yeah. Um, so how do we explain intelligence without yes. using intelligence to explain t- intelligence? Yes, and we try different difficult. ways. There, and, and it's difficult. It is, it's, yeah. It's, we try representation. And, then, and through representation, uh, so there's three different ways we can try mm-hmm. and explain relevance. Representation, yeah. computation, or modulation. Modulation being like there's a part of the brain that's specifically dedicated to relevance realization. Oh, a module, uh, a thing. Yeah, like that, a module. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So if relevance realization is central to meaning making, cognition, awareness, etc., how does it relate to spirituality, to our spiritual teachings of the past, how they taught us what was relevant? Well, and I'm glad this is being brought up too because it's like, you know, like spirituality. On one end, it can get very repressive, and on the other end, it can get so open-minded your brain falls out. Yeah, but it's still something that's key to being human, because from the earliest, the We're earliest things we meaning. can find that's of right. people explaining things or just the the remnants of them doing things, there is something spiritual in there. So mm-hmm. it's going to be in you one way or another. Right. So we're going to have to figure out what to do with it and what it does. Yeah, because humans, regardless of culture throughout time, have always tried to find a way to create a relationship with the ineffable, with the yeah. incomprehensible. And so you could call that the, come spirit, up with stories the thing, that's, the thing of, that's in all mm-hmm. that, that is ineffable. Yeah, that not just stories. We come up with techniques, technologies, sure. like meditation, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So... Um, so we can we can at least get an experiential knowing even if we can't intellectualize yeah. it. So we got representation, which is something that stands for an object in the world. 
it stands in place of or like analogy is a representation mm-hmm. it's, or it's a tool that we use that is representorial. Yes, yes. Analogy has aspects to it. To sure. it. Uh, so relate, representations are a spectral. We're u- utilizing aspects. Um, we don't know all the properties of something, so we create a subset of aspects yeah. that we can narrow in on. Um, and then, but are they, are they a feature list alone? No, representations aren't a feature list alone. Uh, an aspect is of something, when you're narrowing in to create those subsets, you're basically honing in on how is this aspect meaningful to me Sure. Okay. utilization of this. So there's a really good practical um, example of this is when explaining gravity, they'll have like a, you know, a cloth membrane, you know, tied tight and oh, yeah, they'll yeah. put like a weight in the middle mm-hmm. of it and Big then, bowling it, ball in the middle, maybe and then roll something ar- around it. Yeah. And you know, it's not perfect, but it represents the attract, the attractive forces of a high mass object on other objects, even though there's, you know, fallacies within it. Well, it's within a gravity environment. It is actually a single 2d plane opposed to the 3d plane that gravity, but still it's a good, um, analog stand-in, mm-hmm. um, even mm-hmm. though it is not perfect with all of its truths, it's still it's good a, enough to kind of kind of see what's going on. That's here. right. It's explanatory enough. Yeah, it's a good representation. And for you, being somebody who's studying gravity, to be able to look how things move around and interact with each other mm-hmm. in this two D matrix that you're looking at, that is the cloth with the bowling ball. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's re- that's representation. So. Aspectuality, deeply, in Verbeke's words, presupposes the ability to do relevance realization. So we can recognize now representations themselves are not the causes of relevance in our minds. They are not the basis or the locus of how we do relevance realization. So not a causal, not the cause of the realization yes the aspects can feed back and further inform that relevance realization but not they are not the source of it well okay so to bring it back to the explanation of gravity with the bowling ball and all that stuff the aspects of well okay they're spheres Mm -hmm. um the bowling ball has much more weight Mm -hmm. within gravity um so mass than the other balls there is the aspect of speed and angular yeah. and, momentum. and you're getting a representation from the flat plane mm-hmm. that's being bent and so yeah so the, yeah changed the by this yeah the, yep so um, you're getting so a good representation be... of how gravity plays with the space time field and actually like seeing the 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 less than perfect truthfulness of that experience will feed back on it's like okay well we got a two-dimensional plane it's dealing with weight, which is not just mass, but gra- being in a gravitational field. Now that we know that, we can move outside of that, create a better example. A better so model. That, we can come up with a computer-generated model now. Yeah. Even though it does feedback, it is not the source. The source would be the person being like, well, I have this idea. How do I frame this problem, create a mechanization of the problem, enact it, you know, the, Somewhere in there is the start of it, opposed to the well. You know, there's this membrane with a bowling ball in it, and I threw a ball at. No, that's that's not what started this. Yeah, <laughs> something <first>. else did. <laughs> not sure what it is, but something else did. So, so now he goes into how we track the here and nowness of of things, and the the multiple object tracking problem. Oh yeah, he points out that yeah. So there's a problem where you can give people a, a bunch of different shapes 
and they animate they move around a screen mm-hmm. basically and there's like a green x or let's say there's a red x there's a green circle there's a blue square and there's like eight different objects moving around because that's about the max that we can mm-hmm. track easily reliably but the more n- numbers of things that we are tracking at once the less features the less we features can we can keep track of so w- when they ask you oh yeah what color was that x well they ha- you will not remember there's a good experiment that actually probably most of us are um at least peripherally aware of um the the spot the gorilla basically uh experiment where it's like they have people playing basketball and passing the ball and they ask you know people to oh, keep yeah. track of yeah. how many people from each team is passing the ball back and forth and how many times and then they have this guy in a gorilla suit that just comes out he and does a little dance in the middle he walks right and walks behind off. the whole scene and does a, a dance a significant portion walking. of the people that that participated in that experience they didn't even see didn't the gorilla. even see the gorilla so that's <laughs> t- the more objects that you're looking at the less you're going to be able to tell the defined features of any of them to the point where you could have a freaking gorilla or a guy in a gorilla suit walking out in the middle of the field and doing that and your brain just like nope keeping track of the balls yeah, yeah no it's i'm trying to keep track <laughs> yeah. of all this all this action that's going on here because everybody's moving around and you're like okay well there's two different colors this is the white jersey team the black jersey team and then there's this one ball and i got to keep track of five people on each side so you've already gone past your eight limit yeah. So now the ape going in the middle of it, it's not even there. Yeah. No, you can't. You can't keep up with it all. Yeah. Unless you kind of relax your attention a little bit and you're just enjoying it for a second, and then you see that thing. So, so for tracking the here and nowness, you have this. We, we or he calls it finsting. I forget the name of the gentleman. Uh, the fingers the of uh, instantiation. Yeah. Some something like that. Fingers of instantiation. Yeah. Being able to put your finger on it, you know, that put your attention on something or your finger on something. The mind has a capacity to do this. It can put its finger on something. We use words like this or here or now, which are not nouns. They're not saying anything in particular. They're just taggers of what we want you to be paying attention to what it should be salient. Yeah. Yeah. So the mind can keep in touch. Yeah. Um, but it only can track the here and nowness of things super reliably. Yeah. So that salient tagging capacity to touch on something, make it more salient or apparent to ourselves. When you get into quantum physics and like, or actually when you get into regular physics, you can only measure the place of an object mm-hmm. or the speed of an object. Mm, yeah. You can't really measure both of them at the same time. Well, so you got this object, it's here and going that way. Mm hmm. As soon as you measure how fast it's going, you're not sure which direction it's going and exactly wow. where it's at. You know, it's, so you got to track it's, it for it's a long time before you can too, figure man. it out. Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. just our brains; it's in the math too. Uh, yeah. So this here now, they're they're they they dem- they're demonstrative. They yes. demonstrate where a thing is. This I'm here. demonstrating where it is. Demonstrative references. Here. Okay, now. Yeah, they don't refer to any particular thing like a noun does. They're literally just tagging salience. So that's salience tagging. And salience we mean by what is most apparent to you. Yes. Yeah. And inactive. And so he, and he upgrades the term to, let's call this inactive demonstrative yeah. reference. Yeah. yeah. Which, like, and not inactive. Because we are inactive. Like, enacting it with our. Not. The mind acting, isn't putting but, its finger on something, it's but, putting its attention yes. on something. Yeah. yeah. 
not yeah. inactive, but inactive as not in, not yeah not yeah, yeah. not inactive as in not active yes, but yes, inactive but as in, in a, yeah. active but creating the action yes <laughs> yeah that's yeah, it's confusing English, yeah e n a c t i b e for our non native English speakers friends thank you for sticking around it's in English by two West Virginians so you know English is a complicated language yeah. We're so only used to it because we grew up in it. Yeah, I'm not even used to it, and I grew up in it. That's <laughs> right. West Virginia. Same goes for a lot of us. Right, mama, take me home. I just heard that song the other night playing Barely from a football game <laughs> down the street. It was, like, it was like a mile down the street, but it's so loud at the stadium oh, that you could yeah. hear everyone singing. Oh, that was probably at the high awesome. school. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it was. All right, fam, well, we're going to jump back in here now. I think we caught ourselves up. Yeah. Back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. If you guys are enjoying this series, make sure to give John Verveke himself a like and subscribe to his channel. He's got a lot going on over there. All Let's right. uh, back up a little bit. Cause, uh, good call. Let me do that. Yeah. Even like 20 seconds would help. Div. Oh, all right. Here so we are. So I'm going to try and draw that out by calling it inactive demonstrative go. reference rather than linguistic demonstrative reference. So inactive demonstrative reference, which I've tried to explain to you with this notion of the salience tagging of hereness and nowness. Why is this so important? Well, here's where the analogy can help me. I need demonstrative reference, I need inactive uh, demonstrative reference before I can do any categorization. Look, if I'm going to categorize things, I need to mentally group them together. This is mental grouping. This, 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 this. That's what mental grouping is. Mental grouping is to salience tag things Right? and bind them together in a salience tagging. So, what am I showing you? What am I trying to show you is any categorization you have depends on inactive demonstrative reference. An inactive demonstrative reference is only about salience and here-now-ness. You see? All of your concepts are categorical. That whole conceptual, representational, categorical, pictorial, all of that depends on this. But this depends on something that is pre-categorical, pre-conceptual. And you say, but you're using concepts to talk about it. Don't confuse properties of the theory with properties of what the theory is about. Of course I have to use words to talk about it. I have to use words to talk about atoms. That doesn't mean that atoms are made out of words or dependent on words. I have to use words to talk about anything. And I don't want properties of my theory and properties of the phenomena of the theory 
to be confused. I want a theory about, for example, vagueness to itself be clear. I want a theory about illogicality to itself be logical. I want a theory about irrationality to itself be rational. Do not confuse properties of the theory with properties of the thing being referred to. Yes, I have to use language and concepts to talk about it, but that does not mean that the thing itself is made out of or dependent on concepts and categorization. I've given you an argument and I've given you empirical evidence towards this claim and they massively, right, they massively converge together. Now notice, this is a fundamental connectedness to reality you're getting with the Finstein, with the inactive demonstrative reference, when you're getting that initial salience tagging, because it's like the mind being in contact with the world. That's why Politian even uses the metaphor of contact. All right, so the representational level is not going to give us what we're looking for. In fact, we need to think about ways in which we need to pursue something that is sub-representational. So this is in... in um, in Cogside, we, we would call that, the, the, uh, the representational level is called the semantic level, because this is the level at which words have meaning, or by analogy, at which representations have representational meaning. So we have to go sub-semantic, we have to go sub-categorical, we have to go sub-conceptual. Now, is that such a bizarre claim? We saw in higher states of consciousness that people claim to have the most profound sense of meaning, and it is precisely ineffable. They reliably, across traditions, across historical contexts, claim that it is not conceptual. It can't be gra uh, grasped categorically. And they use the language of hereness and nowness to describe it. It's fully present. It's like, you know, eternal hereness and nowness. So this is actually not a, a bizarre claim to consider. Now, it's difficult for us because we habitually identify with that's our ego structure, I would say, tends to, we tend to identify with the way in which we are running representations in our mind, inner pictures, inner speech, etc. All right, so perhaps we could consider the computational level as the level in which we could explain relevance realization, because we have found that the semantic level of representations is inadequate. This is often called the syntactic level. Semantics is about how your terms refer to the world. Syntax is about how your various terms have to co be coordinated together within some system. Uh, so, for example, you know that there are grammatical rules uh, in English about how you can put certain things together. That's the syntax. So in computation, what we're usually doing is we're thinking about the relationship between our symbols. I don't mean symbol in the religious sense. I, I just mean the things that we're using within, for example, 
a, a, a code and program or something like that. We're talking about the relationship between them. Now, there's been a lot of issues around this, and um, I want to point to a core argument by one of the strongest defenders, one of the originators and defenders of the computational theory of mind. So this is a tradition, you remember, it goes back to Hobbes, of the idea that cognition is computation, that Right, we talked about this, the manipulation of an abstract symbolic, symbolic system, right, generally logical or mathematical uh, symbolic system. The manipulation of that is what it is to think. To think is to do uh, computation. Now, Fodor has pointed out, and I think th these are arguments in many ways analogous to, to Wittgenstein, and you have to remember, he's a defender of the computational theory of mind. He's, one of, he's considered one of its founding figures within cognitive science. So when he criticizes it, uh, we, ha we have to first of all do two things. He, he, he died not that long ago, but we have to congratulate him on his honesty as a researcher. His the capacity for self-criticism is, for me, a, you know, a demonstrative measure of how good a researcher is. If you're finding people that are incapable of self-criticism in their intellectual pursuits, then I suggest you give them uh, a quite a wide berth in how much um, confidence you place in their work. So the fact that he does that is important, and the fact that he launches into that self-criticism means he's not being driven, he's not being motivated uh, by his own particular theoretical bias. <coughs> All that being said, what's the nature of the criticism? Well, the nature of the criticism is, right, you have to make a distinction, ultimately. You have to make a distinction between implication, right, and inference. People sometimes confuse these together. So implication is a logical relationship based on syntactic structures and rules a logical relationship between propositions. So here's an abstract symbol. So if I have A and B, and I know that's true, I can conclude that B is true. I don't know what B is. See, I don't have any semantic content. It is purely syntactic, but I can derive that. <clears throat> now, when we try to think about implications, what we have to remember is an inference is when you're actually using an implication relation to change your beliefs. Okay? And the thing about beliefs is that they have content. Right? So when I'm making an inference, I'm not just making an implication. I'm using implication relations in order to alter belief, changing belief. Okay, you say, well, why does that matter? Because changing beliefs to us brings up the important issue right away, right? The important issue right away is, what beliefs should I be changing? What beliefs should I be changing? Let me try and show you what I mean. Any proposition, technically, it's defined in terms of its logical syntactic structure, by all of its implication relations. And depends on, I mean, you can, logicians can get 
we can get very technical here about where, whether or not negation and, and implication are identical, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I'm just going to speak very broadly here because that's all I need. So a proposition, its logical, its computational identity is defined by all of its implication relations to other propositions. So for example, part of the identity of this, A and B, is that it implies B. It also, right, implies A, and all kinds of things. Now, the issue that we have, and this is a point that was made also independently by Cherniak, is the number of implications, logical relations between any proposition and all the other propositions, is combinatorially explosive. Right, combinatorially explosive. You cannot ever make use of, and we talked about this in one, how you can't be comprehensively logical, right? You can't make use of all of the implications of any proposition ever. You cannot be completely logical ever. What you do is out of all of the implications, you decide which one of the ones you select, right? Which one of the ones are going to be used in an inference? Right? Fodor and Cherniak both independently talk about this as a kind of cognitive commitment. Which of the implications are you going to commit to? And this matters to you. It matters to you because commitment is an act that makes use of your precious and limited resources of attention, memory, time, metabolic energy. You cannot afford, you cannot afford to spend them on all possible ones. You cannot even afford to spend them on inferences that are not, and here's what you knew I was going to say, relevant to the context. Which beliefs do I need to change, and that can mean strengthen, by the way, which beliefs do I need to change, which, right, in this context? So, notice what, out of all of these, what am I doing? I'm choosing, and this is what Cherniak specifically argues. This is his term, not mine. Right? What makes, according to Cherniak, somebody rational, we'll come back to whether or not this is a good definition of rationality, but it's at least what makes you intelligent as a cognitive agent is right, that you select out of all the possible implications, the relevant ones, because those ones are relevant to the context because they're going to affect the beliefs that you've already done relevance realization on as applying to this situation or representing the situation well. So inference massively presupposes relevance realization. Now you may think, well, but I can get around that because logic, you know, logic isn't just implications, it's the rules governing the implications. And maybe all I need... We've got to stop you, Vraveki, before he and gets he, on. He, to is, the next he, is, he is flowing like a, Dude, a crick in the springtime, man. Alone. Right. Oh, it'd be nice to get in a crick this summertime. Okay, so where did we leave um, Why is uh, the inactive demonstrative uh, reference important? There we are. The salience tagging of here-ness and now-ness that it allows for us. We need to do an active 
demonstrative referencing before we can categorize and mentally group things together because we're literally saying this 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 yes, this yeah. and this go together yeah so these are all relevant to me so we bind things together with salience tagging it's all about here and nowness it's only about here and nowness and yeah so before we can group you know the the wife the birth certificate the dog the things within the fire before we can um mm-hmm, group mm-hmm. them together we have to create a it, well the inactive the enacting not inactive <laughs> demonstration mm-hmm. dem- demonstrating reference mm-hmm. for these things well the wife is well, it's my wife all the things the that matter to me I'm in it's an hard emergency. it's hard to yeah. get another one the dog yeah the here now of emergency you know, yeah. of fire makes all these other things salient to you in particular like psychologically speaking as well as emotionally speaking um, those things happen very quickly in a split decision. You know, yeah. it's like you see those, you know, oh, this happened in microseconds. See those yeah. short videos of like, you know, really cool people doing things like, you know, I don't know, someone's about to cross the road and the last second they just like put out their hand and stop them and the mm-hmm. car goes fine. Actually, that happened to me when I was a kid with wow. one of my mom's boyfriends, Roland. Hey, Roland, if you're out there, you saved my life. Uh, but yeah, Roland. now we're getting ice cream going across the road and. He wasn't looking like he was looking, but not looking too much. And I was looking, but not looking too much. And I just felt his hand that felt like a bar of hard steel on my chest. And it just stopped me in the car and went, wow, it's <laughs> like, whoa, split second. Wow. So yeah. b- before, yeah. you know, before he, you know, could categorize um, the situation, there was, you know, what's important, what's going on. You know, one important thing was, well, the girlfriend's kid. Mm-hmm. Another one his was care for we're you, in, put you in, at the in traffic of his consciousness, but it happens in that split second before you can, you know, before you can make categories of everything. This what is important happens before the categories of things. Yes, that's right. And I don't, I don't know if it's just a natural like instinct kind of thing, or if it's you know from reiterated programming we've done with ourselves as a species over the hundreds of thousands of years or mm. millions of years leading up to our species or what but it's like it's it's in there deep in order to so deep yeah because it's pre-conceptual it's yeah. like you're saying it's before you even think about it yeah. and all of our concepts are categorical but you're not going through a categorizing process this is pre-categorical so we can't confuse properties the properties of a theory with the concepts used to describe it. He goes on a, yeah, a, yeah, a little yeah. thing there, um, but he makes that point well. The capacity for the mind being in contact with the world is that an active demonstrative reference. Or finsting. Mm-hmm. So, so we have the representational <laughs> level, and then we have the semantic level. We must go sub-semantical, sub-representational, sub-conceptual yeah, so this is, to so, explain relevance. So the This is so cool. This, uh, you know, the demonstration, demonstrative end of things would be the semantical. And uh, and then there's the syntax, mm-hmm. which is the computational end. Yes, how um, things fit together the is what the syntax end, is outlining. You know, creating like, you know, the word apple is a symbol for the actual apple itself. You know, yes. we could have modifying symbols like adding, you know, a, a Granny Smith apple or a, mm-hmm. you know, Golden Delicious apple or whatever, but it's still a symbol for it. Not necessarily, a re, you know, a religious symbol, but an analog, mm-hmm. an analogy to stand in. Like, you yeah. know, all symbols are analogous to the things they are. Like a globe, if you look at a globe, that's an analog of the world. Yes. 
Uh, whereas, like, you know, if you go to, like, Google Earth, that's a kind of... Um, that's a computational version yeah, of it. So now we're in the computational level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that um, before we move on, he also spoke on how transcendent states that the spiritual mm. traditions talked about are reliably non-conceptual. And they use the language of here and nowness. Yeah, so it's like... Regardless of culture. Well, we've, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. So it's like those the, the ineffable things that you can't talk about but you can point towards yeah. so it's basically the here-ness and the now-ness can only be pointed to that's it yeah um that's how i i've always kind of told people like if you're looking for a good teacher a spiritual teacher you'll recognize that they're not giving you a bunch of data to memorize or anything that that like that no because it's not gonna do you no good they're just really good at pointing. Yeah. And if you notice that they continually this, are pointing you back yeah. to doing self-inquiry, to looking within to your sense of presence for yourself, if that's their pointer, then you know that this person's a good teacher. If they're really good at performing that act of pointing you and helping you reorienting back into the self-inquiring mode of beingness, being here and now in the presence, well, even the way that we, might be a good teacher. But if they're just telling you what to believe and this and that's well, even the maybe way not so much. We're tr- training our hunting companions, right? So like dogs, you have a breed of dogs called pointers or mm. various breeds of dogs that are called pointers. But what they do is they're not telling you, oh, I smell a raccoon up around this way, probably about a half a kilometer and uh, 50 feet up There's a tree. There's something over there. No, they just do this and, and you're going to have to go find do, it. Yeah. And then you go. And then we find. Yeah. So they're pointing. Yeah. So a good guide it. is what a real teacher, as far as spiritual wisdom traditions are concerned, is what you'd be well, looking for. You could, the ineffable can only be pointed. Can only be pointed, pointed to. to. And actually a really good way of pointing that we do is, you know, like say, well. You must experience you know, a Theater person. and music. You know, so it's like, you know, you would, you would make a play and you make a theater and you talk about, you know, within the, the, the inaction, not inactions, but the inactions of these characters tell this story that points to a concept, a core concept within the story. You know, you could say like, um, oh God, what was that Shakespeare, the, uh, to be or not to be the Hamlet, mm-hmm. right? You know, Hamlet was really pointing towards the um just because somebody else does something really fucking crappy sorry for the bad language really crappy to one of your loved ones doesn't mean the best solution is continue with the crappiness for another one right um you know like you know the people he killed he killed his uncle but he also died from the poison on the swords that you know he had specialty anyway the point of our stories that we use is to point towards something they can't be described and what i got from hamlet was basically it's like yeah well you became just like your uncle and you sacrificed everybody you loved because you had this idea of like well okay yeah he killed my dad but i need this revenge i have this pride and i have this wrath that I have to. So the story has a message. Yeah, that can't. And it's pointing that to you, but it's through the art of story. And an actor that's really good at embodying, at enacting his role or her role is going to help that message get across even better. Well, sure. Actually, that's, that's, I think that is probably one of the key talents within a good actor is to take that ineffable quality of, of the here now moment of what's Mm -hmm. happening and make it real to you. To really like, be as there. if you yeah. were there, yeah, you know, and it's not something you can tell. Like, oh, this is what you do in this circumstance. No, nah, the, the more be- that they're there, 
in that moment as though it were real, the more believable it is. So we yeah. pick up on all of the body language and the tiny muscle movements. And so a good actor can really deeply embody that moment in that character. So it's, it's the harnessing of this nowness mm-hmm. and it's, you know, well, you can have an exp- a spiritual experience going to a good play or seeing a good movie or yes, or playing a good game or you know the reason why like reenactors reenact battles. Yeah, like and a good like actor is really good at lying and telling the truth at the same time. Yeah, huh. They're telling the deep truth by <laughs> by being deeply embodied in that thing that they're pretending to be, and the pretending part is the lie. But if they can do it in a very deeply honest way, it's it's you're serving something higher here, even in the operation of telling a story there's always this transcendent element to our experiences yeah. and this is what our spiritual teachers picked up on so um Ketra, to bring us back so if, uh we're at fodor not hodor but fodor fodor um his, his critique question uh, oh, would be yeah. you have to make a distinction between implication which We're, is in a conclusion and inference which is using your implications, but figuring out the right implications according to the circumstance you're in now. Right. Was this Hodor or Wittgenstein? Uh, Fodor, Fodor. Uh, I think, was Fodor, first, Fodor. and then Wittgenstein came later. Okay. So the capacity for right. self-criticism, uh, Verveke was applauding this cognitive science, scientist that had thought Maybe. semantics were what explained relevance realization, recognized it doesn't work before the end of his life, and, and that's a, a high sign of a great scientist and a great human being in general, for us to be able to reframe and, and self-criticize yeah, you, our own ideas when using, we find out that we were off. Using, so inferences, using your implications, your your implication relations to change your beliefs. Yeah, so what, so what implication should, is the logical What, what beliefs should you be changing, right? right? Yeah, and then the inference is when you're using implication relations to change beliefs, yes, to adapt beliefs. Changing beliefs brings up what oh oh and then the question of what belief should i be changing brings up that question so propositions are defined by these relations by implication relations it's logical relations to other propositions and all that it implies um so propositions can't be defined in and of themselves they're defined in the relationship to other propositions basically Mm -hmm what we're saying there so now we get on to cherniak to recognize yeah. okay that's like a combinatorial explosive outcome yeah there. so the number of implications are combinatorial too many explosive yes yeah, so yeah. you can't be comprehensively logical that's impossible um maybe a robot can but humans cannot well you so you decide which implications yes are used in an inference we have to and even yeah. to get ai to work right we have to teach it to do that too it has to be conscious like us yeah. to be able to do this or else we'll freeze and not do anything and explode or just go ahead That's and grab it. the cart and walk off with it yeah. and explode yeah right you know yeah it, referencing back yeah. to the robot from last episode but yeah so cognitive commitment is us basically asking ourselves which propositions are we going to commit to that's what matters and there's there's a high cost to committing to any which one That's or right. too many yeah you yeah. know like whether it's your time whether it's the calories that you have yeah to intake whether the energy it's, to put your attention yes. and focus on something you can only commit to so much at once that's right and um he didn't verveke didn't say this explicitly but um basically the what i got is deciding which are relevant according to previous heuristics that you have 
yes. and heuristics being things you've been through. Mm-hmm. There's a pattern. It's somewhat reliable for what's unknown. It's not yeah. perfect. And for what I need to change in this context. Yes, in this yeah, context. That's why we're narrowing yeah. it down. So what makes us rational is that we select the relevant items of our salience landscape to the context and match them to the context of the particular situation we are in, in the here and now. In the here and now, the thing that you can always say here and now when you're pointing to it and moving it (laughs) yeah, and then putting it down here now. That here and now, maybe that's why we are having such a tough time defining and tracking down well, the source of human consciousness. And what was that, Ram Dass? It's here, be here and now. It's to here and now. Yeah. Be here oh, now. yeah. With the chair in the middle of that. That's a classic thing. That's a great book. Everyone should read that. In fact, it's one of those books Whether that you'll you find. Whether you agree with it or not, and you'll find yourself you should, just flipping you through. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got some great points. Well, in and there. also like it's got it's got for, definitely from for the each hippie poem. Era. There's a nice little like picture within it too that you can look at and you know read each poem and whether you agree with all of it or not and frankly i, I disagree with yeah you quite don't have a to bit agree of with it, all but of it but there's yeah. some great nuggets in there like sure. okay things to think about things to point at mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah right yeah and, and for turn those who couldn't see I, I pointed at myself <laughs> yeah, yeah think yeah that, that's a lot of what it is too it's it's helping you turn your attention on your own awareness sure. your own presence Alrighty. all right uh, let's uh back them up just a little bit good oh Yes, this this episode usually. So what I've noticed is Verveki is really good Just about having, having pieces and breaking it up, but th- this episode he's just like you know slipping and sliding. He is right on through. Well, there's fast. there's a lot in here, and it's and he's given us know, a lot of very complex sh- ideas here to keep track of. So uh, I'm glad that we're getting to share this with you all in this way. I hope that it helps to understand things. A little bit better as we try and work it out and understanding our understand it and uh, recapitulate it ourselves. Hopefully, it's it's serving you all well. So let's uh, let's dive back in here. Break on through to the other side. He's going to be loud. Beware. That you've already done relevance realization on as applying to this situation or representing the situation well. So inference massively presupposes relevance realization. Now you may think, well, but I can get around that because logic, you know, logic isn't just implications, it's the rules governing the implications. And maybe all I need to talk about is the rules. And then here's the argument that comes from Wittgenstein, but I think ultimately goes back uh, to Aristotle, is how rules work, right? And this is an argument that um, uh, Brown and others have made, made very, very clear. Rules, rules are, uh, obviously they're propositions. They're not just propositions. They're propositions that, and this is perhaps why you're considering them, propositions that tell you where to commit your resources. Now, the problem with that is that, of course, every rule requires an interpretation. Every rule requires a specification in its application. Let's just use a moral rule because those are easy, the easiest for people to have right, a connection to. I assume that many of you have this rule, be kind, which means in a situation, right, I will derive inferences, uh, uh, sorry, I will use inferences to derive 
actions and changes of belief, and those will fit together in, in a certain way, that will result in me achieving kindness towards others. So I have this rule. It tells me which implications to pay attention to, which beliefs I should uh, make salient, etc. Now, what's the issue about this? Well, think about being kind. What do I mean by this problem of interpret, interpreta interpretation by specifying the application of the rule? The way I'm kind to my son Spencer, what it means to be kind to Spencer, should I use that in how I'm trying to be kind to my partner Sara? No. That would be inappropriate. It could be condescending, could be patronizing. Now, I want to be kind to both of them. In fact, I love both of them deeply. But I'm not going to be kind to them in the same way most of the time. Well, what about how I'm kind to a friend? Should I be kind to a friend the way I'm kind to either Spencer or Sara? That doesn't seem right either. What about how I'm kind to my student? Is, should, I, should that be like how I'm kind to a friend? No. How I'm kind to Spencer? No. How I'm kind to Sara? No. What about how I'm kind to a stranger? Should it be like how I'm kind to my students? No. How about when I'm kind to myself? Should it be like any of those? Uh, right. So here's the thing. And th this is bound up with the fact that like, we, we, we have to always convey more that we can say. You can probably see that. I cannot specify all the conditions of application of the rule in the rule. Because the rule always has to convey much more than it can say. If I try to specify it in the rule, the rule will be become right, unwieldy because it will become combinatorially explosively large. It will, it will no longer serve. Well, you say, well, what you might do is put in a rule on how to use this rule, a higher order rule. That's not going to work because the same problem is going to happen here. And this was Wittgenstein's point. You can't ultimately get an explanation of how you follow rules in terms of just the rules. Your ability to follow rules is actually based on something else. Brown calls this in his book on rationality in 1988, the skill of judgment. Notice what we've moved here. We've moved out of the propositional language right, of a rule, and we've moved into the procedural language of a skill. The, the skill, knowing how to judge what is relevant, pertinent in this situation. Now, again, notice how we can't even maintain the two things that are supposed to be central to computation. We can't use inference because it presupposes relevance. We can't use rules because what is this procedural skill of being able to determine what's appropriate or what fits in the context, what fits the people or the situation, what fits the problem or task at hand? Well, that's the skill of relevance realization. 
So we're seeing that the computational level isn't going to do it for us. I want to stop here before we go, go to this modularity issue and point out something really interesting. Notice what we got with Fodor and with Wittgenstein, and like I said, I think this ultimately goes back to Aristotle. Right? Notice how the propositional, and this was one of Wittgenstein's famous uh, arguments, right, ultimately de depends on the procedural. One of my favorite quotes from Wittgenstein is has to do exactly with this. He said, even if lions could talk, we would not understand them. Even if they could use all of our words, we would not understand them because their skills of what is relevant or important or central to them would be, are very different from ours. He called this a form of life. Their form of life, the, the way they exercise across many contexts, the skill of doing judgments of what's relevant, what's salient and important to them, is fundamentally different from ours because they're cats rather than humans, and therefore even if they spoke, we would not understand them. So we see that the propositional actually depends on the procedural, but notice, and this is really important, if I'm exercising a skill, so, so, so I'm going to throw this or you know, do a martial art block or something, right? That depends on what's called situational awareness. If I'm a good martial artist, I don't just have my skills and just apply them mechanically. It's a great thing if you spar with somebody that's fighting mechanically because they don't have situational awareness. Now, what is situational awareness? Right? When I'm exercising a skill, it depends on my situational awareness. Well, what is situational awareness? Well, you know what it is. We've already talked about it. It's your perspectival knowing. It's your ability to do salience landscaping. It's ability to foreground, background, right? Formulate the problem well. It's all that perspectival stuff. So my situational awareness is how is my salience landscaping foregrounding what's most right, relevant to the task? How, it's, how is it, is it, and is it backgrounding what's irrelevant? How is it adjusting as the situation is changing so that the way I'm applying my skill is more adaptive and more fitted to the situation? So your procedural knowing depends on your perspectival. Well, you know where I'm going to go with this, right? Your perspectival knowing ultimately depends on how well the agent and arena fit together and generate affordances of action and affordances of, of an intelligibility. If the, the agent and the arena need to be in a conformity relationship, they need to be well fitted together. You've seen lots of arguments to this. In order for my salience landscaping to function appropriately. So the perspectival ultimately depends on the participatory. Now, of course, it goes this way, right? They, they, they affect each other in multiple interactions. So I was not originally drawing the arrow of causal interaction. I just did that, but what I was trying to draw originally was the arrow of dependence, asymmetric dependence. This depends on this, and this depends on this, and this ultimately depends on this. So we're getting a lot about how we should think about relevance realization, where we should look for it, and notice 
it's starting to give us a way of connecting and thinking about the four kinds of knowing. What about modularity? What about modularity? Well, the idea would be something like this, right? And, and to be fair, this comes up a lot. The idea, you know, here's the mind or the brain, right? And here's something like, here's the central executive or something like that. It's weird we use a business term for an aspect of our cognition. Um, this is used in psychology. And the idea is the central executive is making all kinds of important decisions. Well, maybe the central executive is responsible for relevance realization. And, 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 and a lot of people, and I know this because I interact with psychologists, they're like, oh yeah, that's it, that's the answer. Well, it's not an answer. It's not an answer at all. Because if it's right, it's ridiculously homunculative. Because what does the central executive have to possess? Inside the central executive is the capacity for relevance realization. I haven't explained it. I've just pointed to a place. And the problem is, you shouldn't... Okay, so first of all, I haven't explained it. It's a homunculator. And secondly, you shouldn't point to a place. Look, relevance realization can't be in any one place. It has to simultaneously. You know this. We've talked about this with how attention works. Remember, you know, that you're always going from feature to gestalt and from gestalt to feature. Attention has to be moving out towards the gestalt and down to the features. Relevance realization has to be happening both at the featural level and the gestalt level in a highly integrated interactive fashion. You can't point to one place and say that's where relevance realization is going on because relevance realization has to be happening at multiple levels of cognition in a simultaneous self-organizing fashion. That's why it it, it can lead to insight. And as I said, pointing to any one thing and then labeling it is not an explanation. It is a homuncular div right. it's, 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 it's a homuncular diversion. That's all it is. Okay. Let's try and draw this all together. What are we learning? Well, I'm trying to show you we're already learning something very interesting about meaning-making. But we're learning what we need, the kinds of properties and processes we need in order to explain relevance realization. First of all, our account of relevance realization, and, and bear with me on this because there's an important way in which I'm going to modify this. right? But our, our account of relevant realization has to be completely internal. Now, what do I mean by that? It has to work in terms of goals that are at least initially are internal to the brain and emerge developmentally from it. Why? Look, any goal in which, that's, in which the brain is representing or referring to something in the world can't be the place where we can generate an explanation of relevance. Because insofar as I'm representing a goal to myself, I've already got the capacity for relevance realization. The goals that are the originating source of relevance realization have to be internal to the relevance realization process. Now what does that mean? 
The goals have to be goals that are constitutive. What are constitutive goals? Constitutive goals are goals that a system or process have that helps to constitute it for being what it is. And this is especially the case for autopoetic systems. We've talked about this. Okay. Living things are not only self-organizing. Living things are self-organized because they have the constitutive goal of preserving their own self-organization. To be alive is to have, or maybe even better, to be the goal of preserving the self-organization that is giving rise to you. That's a constitutive goal. Autopoetic things are self-organized such that they can protect and promote. They, they're constituted to protect and promote their own self-organization. Which means we should see that there's going to be a deep connection between your ability to do relevance realization and being an autopoetic thing. Because relevance realization ultimately has to work in terms of autopoetic systems. Systems that have goals that are completely internal in the constitutive sense. Now that's important because that means there's going to be a deep connection between be, uh, doing relevance realization and being a living thing. Next, so when I say internal, I mean autopoetically internal. Relevance real, our theory of relevance realization has to talk in terms of processes that are scale invariant. Relevance realization has to act simultaneously at multiple levels, local and global, featural, gestalt, and it has to do it in a self-organizing fashion such that it is capable of insight, self-correction. And that means, of course, and that ties in again with being autopoetic, that the relevance realization process has to be fundamentally self-organizing in nature. Okay. Now, we hit a problem here. And it's a problem that might derail the whole project. And might make, it might make it sound like the attempt to give a scientific explanation of relevance, relevance realization, is impossible. Now, notice I've been sort of playing between those and treating them as synonymous, a theory of relevance and a theory of relevance realization. That's ultimately because I've been dodging an issue. Because I'm going to argue you can't identify them. Because here is what I want to argue. Or at least I'm going to... State what the argument is going to be, and then we're going to pick it up in the next uh, video. I'm going to argue that we cannot have a scientific theory of relevance. We cannot have a scientific theory of relevance. I'm going to try and argue that that tells us something very deep about the nature of relevance, and therefore something deep about the nature of meaning and our attempts to explain, articulate, and celebrate our meaning-making capacities. But I'm going to ultimately argue that that is no reason for despair. Because what I'm going to argue is that the fact that we don't have a theory of relevance doesn't preclude us from having a theory of relevance realization. In fact, it will give us a good understanding of what a theory of relevance realization is. And that will help us because we will, we will realize, pun intended, <laughs> that
that all we ever needed was a theory of relevance realization. Thank you very much for your time and attention. caught up with that one notes all the way to the end dude yeah all i can right. barely write fast enough to keep up with the on this episode these are the most notes i've ever taken in my life <laughs> i got dj <laughs> taking notes yeah yeah i am not a note taker um for the most part but for stuff like this i think it's important um because if i want to go through the practice of understanding more by communicating uh, what tidbits I grasp. Uh, right. I need to take the notes so I can remember what tidbits I grasped. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and more than just like, you know, more than just the like, you understand because you feel it and the understanding in a way that you can communicate and explain. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, teacher versus the doer. I do, I have the do thing really well, but like the teaching end of the understanding is something that requires the notes for me that I'm not so um, fluent on, if you will. I have read that the first time you watch something, it's going to be more entertainment than edutainment or education. And the second time is when you start to actually really start to get that information to stick a little bit. So this process of writing notes is allowing us to do that on the fly. And And it actually really allows you to like to see where the holes are of Mm -hmm. like, you know, like when you're going through your notes um, the holes of where you think you are and then you go through your notes and you're like, oh crap, I got to go back to what this was. And then when you listen to like, say the recap from the guy who's writing all of this and then you further realize the uh, certain parts you missed and may not necessarily be 100% um, needed for a baseline understanding, but still like... It certainly helps deepen it. Yeah. Yeah. Just the fact that we are recapitulating now, it's helping deepen our understanding. It's hopefully helping you as viewers as well. So, well, frankly, we... if we were just doing this without the camera and just watching it, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would be down for that too. Um, right. Which actually, let's encourage people. If you got a group of people that like, you know, stuff, philosophies, all, all this stuff, science, kind of yep. stuff, you know, like get together, great and questions, read something, watch something, take a note, you know, like a like a book club, except make it like lecture club mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, instead of oh we all read the book right now we're gonna watch the lecture for you know 45 minutes and then we're gonna spec- spend the next few hours talking about it and, you know having a drink and you know do whatever like but it. like you know like making it more yeah, the, the hope here is to do something similar to that just and uh I, i'm really glad that you all are here with us we actually had a, a great comment on our last video from our friend caitlin that suggested that we uh, do a talk on uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which I have read. It's okay. friggin' excellent. Man's Search I'll let for you, Meaning? Yeah, I'll let okay. you borrow it. It's okay, cool. Victor Frankl got trapped in uh, the prison camps over in Germany during the Third Reich. Oh, boy. And uh, I commented back that the book, um, uh, what is it called? The Story of Ivan Ilyich um, by uh, Solzhenitsyn. 
is a very good companion to the Viktor Frankl story. One Day in the Life of Ivan Illich. What was the name That's, of that book again? Uh, which one? The, uh, the Frankl. Frankl is Man's Search for Meaning. It's one of the best books you'll ever read. Yeah, actually, really good. if I can, if I, mean, I can, this man finds, if I can find the audiobook somewhere, I'll I'll jump on yeah. that. But like, if you bring it over next week, I'll start reading that. But Momos through the Torah, almost at the end of some Thomas Soul. So I need some new stuff. You know, I do like reading, but you you'll know, like it. The time isn't in, isn't intense. there in a lot of times. So it's it's a heroic story, though. I mean, this this man finds truth and beauty and light in the midst of ultimate darkness. It's a well, testament. Is that to the not the truth, beauty, and light? It's a true story. You know, you know? it like, is when it, you can re- like when you can see it from the deepest, darkest depths instead of being consumed by the de- deepest, darkest depths. I can't remember if it was in that book or the, uh, the one day in the life of Elon uh, Ilyich or Ivan Ilyich, um, but there's a. Uh, there's this beautiful recognition that ha- I'm not even going to go into it because I'm kind of ruining yeah, yeah. one of the high parts of the story. Yeah, yeah. So let's, no spoilers, no spoilers. Let's jump in here to uh, where we left off. Uh, every rule requires specification Harold, Harold and Brown. its realization. Yeah, rules are propositions that tell us where to commit our resources. Mm-hmm. But rules also require specification explanations, such as be kind. So there's inferences. Yeah. Yeah, so like the, you could, you know, there's there's implications. You could be kind to a friend. Track. How mm-hmm. would you be kind to a friend? Well, that would be different than you'd be kind to a lover. Would be different than how would you be kind to a child? And yeah. or like say if you're a teacher, like they say, you know, it's like your teacher's your teacher, not your friend. Right. Right. There, yeah, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's 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 or your parents. There's a difference and for good reason or your parents, you know, yeah. it's like sometimes we can be well, too much too friendly and lack the parenting side well and it's even if even um made into length like uh japanese is a good example of this you know you you use different words and phrases towards people you're side by side friendly with Mm -hmm. or if you're slightly higher status like say you're older you would use certain words to regard somebody that you're still friendly with, but that's younger than you are still friendly with. It's older. Uh, but then yep. there you have words and language that you use to refer to somebody who is higher on the hierarchy than you say in business. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's even like encoded oh, well. into some of our languages. Cause like, it, so in, in the West we use yes, sir. No, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Um, to like, you know, Oh yes, sir. Somebody you're, Showing Show respect, res- yeah. differential respect for usually um, somebody who's older than you or somebody who has more experience in a circumstance or a higher, um, you know, higher strata within the company that you're in or whatever it is. So that this is, you know, core fundamental categorization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of relationships and then how to deal with the different level of relationships. So this rule be kind is dependent on which level of relationship mm-hmm. with say a person or with the arena that you're in, you know, uh, be kind to nature. Well, you wouldn't use the same techniques that you'd be kind to say your, uh, three-year-old kid mm-hmm. because the nature needs something different than your three-year-old kid. Right. Sometimes it needs some things ripped out of the ground and, you know, well, you don't want to rip your kid's hair out. You know, that ain't going <laughs> to yeah, do no right. good. So we use selective judgment, <laughs> yes, which is how we determine which implications and beliefs to hold relevant. Mm-hmm. Because we can't use the propositional or computational to, to determine what's appropriate entirely. Yeah, um, and we can't come up with this 
higher rule that can you know deal with all of the different relationships uh, within right. it. You know, with with, a, with a merely propositional mode. Yeah, because the propositional we remember from previous episodes depends on the procedural mm-hmm. aspect of knowing. So that's Brown, uh, the, mm-hmm. the 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 skill of judgment. Yeah. So it, even if lions, <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. So even if lions could talk, we could not understand them. Mm-hmm. Is the example that Brown gives? Their form of life, what is relevant to them, is so different from ours. Even if they were using the same words, how they would be communicating would be worlds different than well, our ways of understanding reality. What their motivations are, what yeah. their you know, like... yeah, it depends on your situational awareness. Yeah. So this is your perspectival knowing, your perspective, your well, ability to do salience landscaping is dependent on this perspectival knowing, how how well we can foreground and background what's irrelevant or or relevant to us. Well, and we can actually see this, like say, like uh, culturally, if you live in a country that has like a siesta tradition, where like in the middle of the day everybody takes a nap. Mm-hmm. So all the stores close. So between whatever hours in the middle of the day, nobody's open. If you're not a part of that culture, that perspective, mm-hmm. you just like, what the hell? I want to, you know, I want to get my Coke and my Hershey's, but it's it's noon and everybody's taking a nap. But you know, if you live in a place that's really freaking hot in the middle of the day, and everybody's been doing this, where you eat your mid midday meal and you take your nap and you're good, and then, well, dinner time's at nine instead of you know, say here in America, dinner time is six to seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly, you know, so that's that your perspective changes. So that's mm-hmm. your perspectival. Yeah, your knowing. perspectival. And so, then your procedural, I think, is that capacity for how well the agents in the arena are matched. So this is your ability to do the salience landscape. And I that's think that's that your, that's your uh, situational awareness. Because the perspectival depends on the procedural. I'm sorry, the procedural knowing depends on perspectival perspectival depends on how well the agent and arena are matched sure there we are so to break it down so like the, the CS, asymmetric the dependence the method is you're an agent with the in the arena of say like um you know like spain or something mm-hmm. like that um but so this is the propositional well this is the uh um, and then this is the agent being aware of its arena so that's so the you're, you're you're an agent say you're a uh american going to spain you know you're going to Spain. You know that you're going to have to deal with some like, um, you know, quirks within the communities. Yes, because there's your propositions. Yeah, and then, your perspectival is who you are and where you and, are. And the the procedural end is your situational awareness of realizing all the shops are closed between ah, these hours. There you go. And I was talking to somebody, and they're like, "Oh yeah, no, we're we're all taking a nap, dude." Like, and this, it's so this too leads hot. to the participatory level yeah. of knowing. Well, and and the thing is, is it's kind of, they're kind of intertwined too. Because if you grow up in it, the participation, the excuse me, not precipitation, participation, would be uh, automatic, right? Because mm-hmm. you've been doing it for so long. It's, yeah. it's a traditional thing to do. But you know, your situational awareness realizes, like, oh, I can't shop for my Coca Cola and Hershey's between these hours because this is what's happening here. And then, while well, I can modify my behavior, great. I'll take a nap in those areas. So I modify how and, I proceed yes. here. Yeah. Yeah. So. So now we tried to explain this through modularity. How is the brain doing relevance realization? Because we've recognized it isn't doing it merely through uh, categorization 
or um, representation, so, sorry. It's so, not doing it through computation. Before we get into that real quick, though, so sure. um, where you were kind of getting at. So the arrow of difference. Yes. Is, so you could say it starts as procedural knowing. Well, it starts with propositional, then perspectival, then procedural, then participatory. Okay. I wrote it down. Yeah, I, okay, I caught cool. it on the board. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there is, you know, one it's is like a gradient different to another is mm -hmm. different to exactly. another. So that's the asymmetric dependence but, he's pointing out. Yeah. But yet again, you know, things tend to, inform. they're building on one another, aren't they? And yeah, then also reinforcing back non-linearly yes. as well. Yes. Um, yes. Our brain's doing all this at once. Every time that we, uh, uh we ask somebody, uh, Hey, I'm out of gas. Where's the gas station? Yeah. So modularity. So, so is relevance realization happening in the central executive part of the brain? Yeah, what is the central executive? Well, that's the homuncular fallacy right there, right? Well, you're pointing to a place where relevance realization happens, that, but that doesn't explain how. Yeah, right? because, well, that, that, that central executive is having a relevance realization, which gives you a relevance realization, which means that central executive has to have something that gives it a relevance realization. It's part of what and, executes the decision-making, but it's, relevance realization has to work in an integrated fashion on multiple levels of cognition in a self-organizing fashion, so it can't just be happening in the central executive part yeah. of the brain. So what what does that central so executive that possess? Yeah. You know, What does that have? Like what, Without delving into the homuncular... Uh, fallacy like what does that central executive have not enough to do relevance realization is, is what Verveke's getting yeah. at so uh, so we, uh, we we know that attention knows how to move from detail or features to gestalt and back and gestalt to features yeah you can so see our explanation has to work in a way that explains how the brain recognizes goals is where Verveke gets to here Goals yeah. must be internal to relevance realization. Yeah, so you could imagine relevance realization, put that in the middle, and then at one end you have features coming in, and one end you have gestalt coming in. Mm -hmm. And both of the, these things and all of these things are self within relevance realization or self-organizing themselves. Mm -hmm. In an auto-poetic fashion. Yes, um, in a, like an automatic fashion that... In a way that only a living thing can seem to do. Only living things are auto-poetic. So we know that goals must be constitutive, mm -hmm. auto-poetically internal, in order to promote self-organization. So there's a deep connection between relevance realization and being a living being. This is why once we figure out a way to teach AI how to do relevant realization, then we're quite possibly going to have AGI on our hands. But can that be done? now or can it be done enough to fake it anyway um so the uh, auto poetic yeah self-organizing by its very nature to protect and promote mm -hmm. so in order to i guess uh, protect the previous realizations and promote the further gathering mm -hmm. or obtaining of new revelation revelations without destroying previous revelations. Mm -hmm. That's what I got out of the protect and promote. Yeah, it might reframe them for us, but it doesn't need to erase them to do this. Well, sure. Like, it you just know, needs like, to reframe them. You, when you learn them. new things, you don't just forget the things that you believed before. Mm -hmm. You actually understand why it wasn't relevant yes, and why yeah, yeah. the directionality maybe of your intuition was going in the right mm -hmm. direction. It just latched onto the wrong thing. So we have a problem now. 
we cannot have, perhaps, this is what Verveke is proposing, that we can't actually have a scientific theory of what relevance is. We just know that we can still understand what relevance realization is, even if we can explain how precisely it works. Do we not, know what it's doing. Do not despair. You, you don't have to be That's, able to poke it with a probe in order to start to understand what it does. And utilize it. Yeah. 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 So it remains a mystery right now as far as neuroscience is concerned. Now, this series is, is a couple of years old at this point. So maybe look at some of Verbeke's newer videos and other neuro, neuroscientists, neurologists, cognitive scientists episodes, perhaps. Um, I know that Ian McGilchrist is doing really fascinating work on fundamental nature of reality and our brains. Um, he's got some very compelling ideas that he's been sharing. So there's a lot of people at the forefront of this, but uh, I do suspect that we're still kind of floating in that area of not quite understanding. Well, it's, it's kind of cool though. How the brain like, does this. We're going through this. Still don't is, understand consciousness. We're going through this. That is like, you know, like a few years old as it is. But then, you know, as we're going through, we can look into the future, which is the more recent stuff compared to what we're going through and see what the fruition of some mm -hmm. of these thoughts and procedures that we're discussing now are getting to yeah oh i've been i've been holding back on diving deeply into his new series on wisdom mm -hmm. but he's got a whole other new series oh, yeah, going I'm on holding off building, on this, building off of this series yeah yeah for sure and there's there's so many great conversations he's been having with so many people as well on his channel and he's also sharing the enactment of dialogos which is a new form of conversation uh new form of interaction not even new it's an old form that we forgot about yeah. it's basically an old capacity that well, humans have had for a long time to quote graham hancock we were a species with amnesia yeah and that's for one of our commenters yeah uh, yeah no like doubt man. for sure um no yeah, graham like, hancock is awesome but we're we're uh, i will call it the baby in the bathwater fallacy that humans really fall into a lot mm -hmm. is while coming into um novel ideas and understandings we do have a tendency to throw out more than we should while we're going into it yeah we do um yeah. so that that could probably amount to a lot of the lost information it wasn't just the burning of alexandria or a, maybe a huge impact just the the stuff that we throw out because we're coming into new understandings of mm -hmm. things and that's where people who appreciate history and philosophy and can look at things over time that's that's why that's important yeah. is to regather maybe the bits that we shouldn't have thrown out mm -hmm. and then make really sure that the other bits are should have been thrown out. Yeah, and we got to understand why they needed to be thrown out and keep that information right. relevant and available for us. And even why they need to come back too. Like, because mm -hmm. like at certain periods, of some time, of those ideas maybe didn't need to be thrown out, or at that period of time needed we to threw be the thrown baby out, out too, to, yeah. for something to happen. But then you have to come back and reclaim it because. Mm -hmm. You know, time we understand act. it, see it in, with, in a new frame. Relevance new realization light. isn't just a direct line. It's Yeah, that's a really good point because <laughs> you know, the, one of the problems that we have as humans is that we can get very attached to our ideas. This is sure. our ego. It's, you know, we're so attached to our ideas. So when we disprove a previous idea, there is, there is kind of a, there's a motivation to destroy the old, like you were saying. Yeah, for and just erase it all for better just, or for worse. It was know? all wrong. Yeah, and 
that for better or for worse. And that's well, unfortunate. It's, it's either all wrong or I'm going to pick it. Because we need to know why it was wrong. Yeah. And we need to be able to teach and understand that. Yeah. And also apply. Because so. then it's just, it's going to sprout back up again in a new form later on if you don't do that well, in a sure. comprehensive fashion. And, you know, it's like, so. So keep the knowledge available. This is why free speech is so important, too. You, you've got to right. be able to have these arguments out in the open. If there's a very controversial subject, there's certain groups of people that say horrible things sometimes, but you've got to keep that stuff out in the air and don't let it yeah, fester so in a dark corner. Yeah, so we can all agree that that's wrong. You've got, we we got to call it out no in the public square in front of everybody. But we got to why it's a bad, bad idea and come up with a really the good argument. Square first, though, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you need a properly functioning public square to do this. Yeah. That's not censoring itself to yeah, the God. Oh, but man. if you can find that, then uh, in those places we can have these conversations, and even the most difficult, controversial subjects can come up, and we can say why this particular idea is so wrong in front of everybody, so that it is not going to be able to, like I said, fester in a dark corner sure. or be utilized by people to convince people that are unknowing about the arguments against it. Yeah. So it's it's very important for bad ideas to be able to be aired out in the public square. You you need free speech absolutely to have a, a free country. It's the most a free mind. Well, I, I, I don't know who said it, but if you can't speak, you can't think. That's true too. I don't know who said that it was first, a, but that's, that's I know Peterson said that among others. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's 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 very much true. If you can't speak, you can't think. And that it's also being communal and having language helps us understand. Yeah. And we as a species, we think together more than we realize. We're all building off of each other and everyone oh, and everything sure. that came yeah. before us. So it's I would I'd, I'd venture to say very actually, detrimental to us to cut off from each other when we do that. I'd, I'd venture to say that we've actually very rarely truly just think by ourselves for ourselves. It's almost everything we do is thinking about somebody else, whether it's, you know, what they think or what my responsibilities are. Just about every, well, every word that, you know, someone invented and speech language itself, we've been working on for thousands of years, communally working on. Well, if you've never fallen out of the tree, You've know, you know there's risks of falling out of the tree because you've seen somebody or heard a story about somebody falling out of a tree. Right. And how rare are new ideas, completely new ideas? Because every idea that we have has been said before well, us in some way. In that case, I would that's say... That's why this ex- series is so exciting because there rare, are new ideas I, here. In that case, I would, as far as like, you know, how, how rare is a new thing, like a new thought, a new idea, I would say exceptionally rare, but also exceptionally common at exceptionally, the same time. Yeah, right. It's like music. Yeah. Yeah, is there, you only got seven modes, seven yeah. made chords, a bunch of modifications. Yeah, but every song is but a the context new song. and how you think, how you say it, how you form that idea is always going to be, even if it's a recapitulation of something else. It's from your perspective and mm-hmm. your own words, from your own thinking and experience. Sure, yeah. So it's still going to have its own unique flavor and taste. You know, well, you could t- you could it. take the one four five blues, whether it's a you know. Whether it's a uh, 12-bar or a 16-bar blues, it's either one. There's a whole bunch of different songs that are completely different from the the fact that you can just hear one or two notes within that song and recognize that song versus another song that are both 16-bar blueses, but you can immediately, within two notes, tell the difference. So that's 
new profound. things yeah, are exceptionally rare, but can also be the same exceptionally note, common. But how big is that person's finger? How much muscle pressure? Mm-hmm. When is the precise microsecond they're letting go? And how are they letting go of the string? And what how are they, they hitting the string? What are they playing All of these on? things add so much flavor to how that note sounds. How, yeah. how did the uh, you know the technician who mixed the sounds together or the mastering guy who mastered it all together? They... You can feel the emotionality. So, through every single step of the process of the person that was doing the mastering or the playing or everything. Yeah. yeah. So the moral of that is, is um, there's nothing new under the sun, but everything under the sun is also new. <laughs> At the same time, always both Always a hands. paradox. Yeah, always. Man. Reality is always a yeah. paradox. It's so cool in that way. Yeah. Well, that this was a good episode. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to the next. Yeah, so am I. Thank you guys so much for tuning in with us on this episode of Actual Lie and Meaning Making 101, this special series that we've dedicated to going through this Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series by John Verbeke. Uh, but look forward to other things that we might be going through in the future. And uh, if you enjoy this series, make sure to give John a like and subscribe. And if you like this show here and you're enjoying what we're doing, of course, we would love for you guys to like and subscribe and continue to join us here as well. Share with your friends and family. And check out our band, American Dharma. We're online. We're everywhere online. Just like this show is in podcast form everywhere online. So look us up. Actual podcast. We'll American probably, Dharma is playing a show on Saturday in Hagerstown, Maryland. So if you're in the area, come on we'll up. We'll probably start uh, live streaming our practices on new songs. Mm, we, yep. we discussed that. I think it'd be a good idea. But you know, yeah, once so we get them ready that. enough for the audience, yeah, we'll start playing them out for you. We well, got some new stuff. Once that we've we been got the on. order of the songs, and we don't sit there for thirty minutes being like, okay, which part is which? <laughs> what is this? What's going? <laughs> which Speaking actually which, would be interesting to see. But if you're not a musician and in a band, you'd be like, come on, stop yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> it might be fun just for uh, uh, kind of it. a window into <laughs> someone else's life and experience yeah. and the, you know, hmm. reality TV mode. Yeah, boy. All right, we love you. Yeah, I love you guys. We will see you next time. Meow.